This is a long time coming. So glad to be here tonight. This is the first official inaugural live cast from Peak Prosperity. I am your host, Dr. Chris Martinson, or just Chris. You can call me tonight as every night. So really pleased to be doing this live. Why live? Because, you know, we do the premieres. People often have asked, hey, can we do this live? Love to be with you live because your comments, your chats in the chat window we're going to be reading them, and if it's appropriate, we'll be bringing those conversations in. We want to have this dialogue with you. And who's we tonight? I'm blessed to be in the studio and graced with the presence of Grace O'Malley. Grace, Hello. welcome. Thanks for being here. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's an honor, Chris. Oh, honor's all mine. So let's start right there with this. Um, first up, wait, let me, let me get some ground rules out of the way. Nothing you hear tonight is going to be financial advice, medical advice, or anything like that. This is all educational. And uh, we're here in the spirit of opening up the conversation. And the reason I do what I do is because I'm convinced that the world is headed in a really wrong direction. I'm convinced that there are a lot of deluded people out there who are slavishly devoted to what I call the narrative. The narrative is a story they're holding, but it's not an accurate story. It's not a right story. We've seen how wrong they've been about COVID and ways to address COVID, which is as close as I can say out here in public. And by the way, we're going to have to dance around some lines here today because we know censorship is very real because we do not live in a free and open society, which honors and values free speech. I certainly do. I know Grace does. So we're going to be talking about censorship tonight. But the reason we have to have these conversations at all is so that you know that there's other non-idiot people out there, and Grace knows that, and you know that. Look, it's time for us to band together, for us to find each other. So in many respects, this program is about being that clarion call for people who can hear the signal, and the signal is 1 plus 1 equals 2. You and I are perfectly capable of doing our own research, reading the papers, figuring out what we need to do, but mostly having integrity in our lives— and taking responsibility for our own outcomes and doing the best we can to help make this a better world. So that's why we do what we do. And so this is really about having a conversation. Mm -hmm. And Grace and I are here to have a conversation tonight. So welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you for being here. Gladly. I yeah. feel all charged up. So let's go. Why are you here? Let's talk about that. Why am I here? Yeah. Well, I'm... How did you end up in this seat tonight? I'm lucky. I'm blessed. Mm. I truly am blessed. And uh, what I want you to know right now as we have this conversation is that I deeply share your conviction that there is a script, there is a narrative, and you said that people were slavishly following it. Mm -hmm. I shift that a little bit and say that people have been enslaved by it. And while I heard you um, share that this is not an open and a free society. I disagree. I believe that we were and we can be again and that what we're doing right now, I'm a member of your tribe and I'm here because I believe that we must change it. We are in that, as Kunstler says, Jim Kunstler says, a yeah. long emergency. Uh -huh. And I hope that we come out on the other end. Uh, I won't leave you standing out on the plank of hope by yourself. You've, you and the tribe have helped me change my life. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going to be a voice in the wilderness before I'm silenced. So that's why, that's why I'm here. Hmm. And you have a long history as an activist, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you had to bring that up. Yeah, I did. Because I, I think it's important. You know, I was listening to this podcast that blew me away, which was um, uh, Majid Nawad on... Oh. 
Joe Rogan. Yeah. And I didn't really know who he was. I'd heard some of the chatter about him, but when he described his background, mm-hmm. that authenticity of saying, you know, he'd been in an Egyptian prison, he'd been labeled an Islamic terrorist, even though he was a terrorist of ideas, not actions, as it were, uh, all of that. But at any rate, he comes through all of that with just this extraordinary presence and calm ability to explain stuff and sure. pulling no punches. So I listened to all of that and I thought of you right away because wow. of, because of your activist background as well, which is somebody who's stood up when it was not easy to stand up. Is it ever easy? No, it's never easy. It's not. It's not. In fact, when it matters most, it's the hardest, not the easiest. I'm going to pause and think about that. And I have an inclination to readily agree. Um, I, as we were prepping for the show, mm. I shared with you that I am a deep introvert. I'm, I might be one of the shyest people on the planet. And so it's never comfortable for me. One of the things that I've gained um, some skill with is getting increasingly comfortable with being super uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And activism, um, a few years ago, I heard one of my my sheroes, Sandra Steingraber in Ithaca, New York, she, uh, she said, remember that how you frame your activism matters. Fight for what you love rather than against what you despise. Oh, I like that. I love that. So what were you fighting for that you loved? I, when I heard her say that, I really stopped and I thought about what matters most because um, I listened to a lot of Jordan Peterson, as you know, mm-hmm. and I'm trying to pursue a life worth living, a life of meaning versus happiness. Mm-hmm. And so what means a lot to me is the environment. Yep. <laughs> you know where I'm going with this. The environment, mm-hmm. creatures, mm-hmm. plant life. Life? Yes, life. Mm. Life. Uh, freedom, making my own choices, having a voice, um, the ability to grow my own food, the ability mm. to live resiliently and well, sometimes well. Those things matter to me. Children matter to me. This country matters to me. The people in my community matter to me. So you see where I'm going. How many of those things are under assault? All of them. Yeah. All of them. Mm-hmm. Horrifically right now. So it was well worth the five-hour drive to be honored to be in the seat with yeah. you and to talk about well, Thanks for things. coming. But I, I like this idea that, that mm-hmm. increasingly I'm turning this way too, which is you fight for something, not against something. Because mm-hmm. as soon as you fight against something, you're on their battlefield. You have to fight their fight under their terms. They mm-hmm. say, here's what we're doing that's going to assault you. And you have, your decision is, oh, am I going to fight the pipeline? Am I going to fight neonicotinoid pesticides? Am I going to fight, you know, this inability to, you know, get uh, an over-the-counter medication, you know? Yeah. And if it, you do, then I, but they wear you down. They, whoever they, let's, we can talk about who they are later, but, but the system will wear you down. Meanwhile, if you fight for something, that's different. It's almost like the Buck Mr. Fuller quote, which says, you never change a system. <laughs> that's right. Right. You have to create like something it? new. Something new. So that's what I think this is about, is there's something new coming. There has to be something new coming. That's where my hope lies. Because if, if it's more of the same, but just darker and grubbier and all that, I'm not really sure... I'm interested in that battle. I'm going to tell you something about activism. All right. You, good. Cause. I just straightened up in oh, my chair. Well, I, I'm here to listen. Thanks. And by the way, I, I have to tell you how humbled I am and deeply honored that you thought of me after hearing Majid. That's 
I'm going to get choked up. I'm going to try not to do that. We're live. Mm-hmm. I did. I thought of you right away. I, uh, it came to me right in that moment. I said, for the inaugural live cast, have to have grace in that seat. Thank you. The, uh, the, the best thing about activism is the allies that you make, the unintentional allies that I've made. Mm-hmm. It's really, it's, it's reminded me of the goodness of people. Uh, I was dogging uh, former Governor Cuomo in New York State. Uh, <laughs> Who and needed dogging, by the way, for lots of reasons. <laughs> lots of reasons. The list is endless. But this time it was about fracking in New mm-hmm. York State. And so we had this network of fractivists. That's what we called ourselves. Mm-hmm. And we would show up wherever he was and try to get his attention about the harm that was being done to our infrastructure and how there was no transparency around it any of it. So for people who don't know, I read this study that, you know, Texas, the, the fracking capital of the universe, uh, had had um, had taken in like a billion dollars in what they call severance fees, which mm-hmm. are fees they charge to the frackers, billion dollars. But they had sustained $3.2 billion of infrastructure damages, damage to bridges and roads. Sure. Right? Just because of these 80,000 pound trucks. Come rumbling through Roaring through. Not just a sure. few. One, one well. 1,200 trucks have to get there fully loaded sand mm-hmm. you name it very right? sandy lots yeah. happens to yeah the so so anyway so what's the difference between a billion and 3.2 billion who who paid for that 2.2 that's the taxpayers mm-hmm. of texas subsidizing a very wealthy industry which again you might say that's not a good yeah. use of things so i could understand saying nice little negative we externality maybe, maybe we should talk yeah. about this first trot it along sure yeah uh, so i was out i was out dogging governor cuomo that's not a sentence you get to say every day i'll say that one <laughs> you again get to with say pride that. yeah and i i found myself in front of the eastman theater where he was giving an address it was a snowy day and i said to all of my activist friends hey come on out and i brought cocoa and i thought that would incentivize them to come on out and no one showed but when I found myself on the corner mm-hmm. holding my little sign, there were a bunch of other protesters that were protesting something called the SAFE Act in New York State about um, about the right to own firearms and handguns. And, and so they said, hey, you hippie, get, get off of our corner. Uh-huh. And I said, well, hold on, hold on. We, we might have something in common. I love nature. You hunt in nature. At that time, they didn't know I'm also a hunter. Mm-hmm. And and so we had a, a workable truce as we shared the corner. And I shared a little cocoa. And mm-hmm. they, they took a little cocoa. We made friends. And then I slowly revealed that I, I like to hunt too. And they started to ask me questions about fracking. And so in that space of maybe an hour, there was some headway gained. And there were some unexpected alliances made that revealed to me the importance of not othering who mm-hmm. I might perceive as the opposition. We have far more to fight for together um, when we align for what we love. And it's a power there. Yeah. Now, fracking, um, mixed subject. I mean, uh, there's a lot of... <laughs> so it was interesting. When Biden was on the campaign trail, he said, we're going to end fossil fuels, mm-hmm. right? And then gasoline went from 2 to $4 a gallon. And he said, how fast can we get the fracking turned back on again? Right. Yeah. So it's it's one of those subjects. It's a little volatile oh, in sure. terms of, you know, where people stand on it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll be let, let me be clear about this. Uh, I have a feeling that humans are going to use every available molecule of fossil fuels. Yep. So people ask me all the time, Chris, 
why don't you fight more against fossil fuel use and climate change? I said, because I don't have any concerns. We're going to burn it all. We're going to treat it like there's a, a petroleum center of the earth. Creamy the nougat creamy center. Creamy nougat <laughs> center. Says, says that. Yeah. <laughs> if, if it wasn't so well, horrible, I'd, I'd laugh a lot harder. Yeah. It, and But now we're talking about here in the United States of, of taking the natural gas that we produce by fracking and then um, liquefying it and sending it to Europe. Because Europe needs some right now because Russia, all this, we can talk about that in just a bit. But the reason this bothers me so much is that when you liquefy natural gas, it's a really energy expensive process. It takes energy, Mm -hmm. right? It's like, imagine how much does it take energy to, you know, use a tire pump to to inflate a car tire? Yeah, it does, right? You'll know that. Mm -hmm. Well, to continue that pressurization process until you create a liquid, very energy expensive. Right. So the energy that you use to turn a natural gas into a liquid is energy you will never use for any other process. You won't build a road, you won't build a greenhouse, you won't improve soils, nothing. You'll turn a gas into a liquid. That's a terrible waste of energy at a time when we don't have any to waste at this point in time. And we're going to do that because Putin bad man, right, is the story. So so I'm just showing how quickly... There's that narrative again. I know. See how it kind of... Sneaks right in there and you'll do stupid things and, and we, you, the collective you, will do stupid things in, in devotion to a narrative. That needs to be saved, right? Oh my God, it hasn't rained in three days. We need three more children's hearts. We'll roll them down the steps and to speak Aztec for a second, right? Wasn't sure where you were going there. I was starting to worry about my invitation to be on this live cast. Well, hey, you know, but that's how they did it. They had a narrative that said that the the rains came because of the human sacrifices they were doing. Mm -hmm. And then they went through a prolonged period of drought and they did more and more and more of it until finally the people said, I don't believe your connection between those two things is legit anymore and then it broke and when it broke it was bad it was so bad that cortez who was not a nice person his priest had seen a lot of bad things when the aztecs turned on each other so they were they weren't like taking hearts out of like the elite's children's chests they would go out into the poorer suburbs and Mm -hmm. gather those children Mm -hmm. so there's this resentment that was building over time so that when it finally broke and the people turned against their leadership Cortez's priest said, I've never seen such vile things done human on human. And this guy had seen some bad stuff. Right. So when the narrative finally breaks, you know, it's you can feel that holding. That's the period of time I, I feel like we're in right now is that people are holding on to a narrative that just doesn't make sense. We've seen it around covid. Yes. Right. We've seen it around American exceptionalism. I think people are, you know, we've got bad narratives around education and what that is. All all, all sorts of crevices. Right. Mm-hmm. And desperately trying to keep that narrative alive, even though anybody, if you took them like lead character in Constant Gardener or, you know, you take a Martian and somebody who just doesn't have this, the frame of reference to be caught by that narrative will tell you this thing isn't working. Oh, it's becoming increasingly obvious where I live that you were describing the breaks as crevices. Yeah. And ever widening gulfs. It's. It's scary to me. It's sad to me. And I'm invested in trying to make it better. I don't believe we're in the final act yet. No, I I took a a trip um, by Amtrak a couple years back. And I just like to observe everywhere I'm going. And so trains go, trains go where trains go. And that trip from New Haven down through to about D.C., Mm -hmm. you go through some bad spots. Mm -hmm. Crumbling infrastructure, spalling concrete, just trash everywhere. The whole time... You couldn't keep a laptop on that little plastic table tray that comes out in some of the seats, you know, because it would slide right off on some of the 
jostlings sure. that would happen. Meanwhile, you go to Europe or into China, you get on with the TJVs, you could, you could have a wine glass you can't even see the ripples in Sure. when you're traveling three times the speed. Yeah, we never took that seriously. Right. Reinvesting in that infrastructure. We haven't taken that seriously. So that's part of the narrative we have in this country, which is, oh, we blow stuff up. So looking at Biden's latest budget, he said, more for the military. Mm-hmm. Nobody can explain to me what we get for that, you know? But the same It depends p- on how you define that we. <laughs> so if we're really careful in defining terms, what yeah. do we get for that? The two of us, I'm going to bank on Scrimella. Maybe we get to hold on to those, those cracks and those gulfs. But there's lots of people that are that are profit, profiting from the yep. great swindle. Yep. All right. Well, wow, we've got a lot of great comments going on here. <laughs> and hey, everybody, thanks for commenting. Um, we get to scan them from time to time. So this is awesome. Thanks for being here. Um, I do want to talk about some of the stuff that I see here and what's coming up. So let's talk about um, what's going on here. So I think this is, so I've been talking uh, at Peak Prosperity uh with my tribe over there for a long time about about this, which is, I'm reading a headline here. It's in Reuters. It says, Putin says Russia will enforce ruble payments for gas starting Friday. Uh, I guess that's tomorrow in this particular scheme of things because you see the headline title, um, byline, March 31st. That's today. Mm-hmm. So Putin, Russia, Putin says Russia will enforce ruble payments for gas from Friday. So this is something I know you follow economics a lot and yes. finance and all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we talk about it pretty regularly. This to me is the biggest thing ever because of this thing called the petrodollar. Yes. The United States has been the recipient, the largest recipient of the exorbitant privilege of not just having the reserve currency, as Charles de Gaulle said, but the petrodollar reserve currency. And so for people who don't know what this means is that um, the... Dollar is the unit of trade for oil everywhere. So if you're Peru and you want to buy a barrel of oil from Oman, you pay for dollars, right? Mm-hmm. Now you could trade those dollars into something else, but that's how it got enshrined. That was Henry Kissinger, I believe. That was. Mm-hmm. So what do you know about that? I mean, I've read some about it. but well, I, I think that, are you asking me what do I think about the petrodollar or what do I think about what's about to happen with Putin and and the shift to let's paper. set the petrodollar up first because I want to make sure everybody gets this because it's really important. So sure. con- I love context. Well, my understanding is that the dollar um, was so attractive in part, or was was foisted as being more attractive because it was stable. Hey, you don't want to you don't want to have trade in in some other uh, in the ruble or another medium of exchange because mm-hmm. oh those governments are crazy you can't really trust them the united states is stable and we were sold we sold it in part on our diplomacy and our skill and our strength as a nation but that's changing and as those dollars uh went to pay for the oil they also found their way back into the united states it was a nice little setup well so here's here's my understanding so uh, Nixon takes the United States off the gold standard mm-hmm. August 15th, 1971. Mm-hmm. Huge seminal event. By the way, he came out and said, um, I am temporarily suspending the gold window. And that is still temporarily suspended, like our, like your temporary transitory inflation. Still here, right, and getting worse. So so these temporary things are never temporary. That's the first thing to learn about government. Um, Wait a minute. It wasn't two weeks to flatten the curve? <laughs> no. Well, the hardest part of the two weeks is the first 500 days. So that's... <laughs> That's, oh. <laughs> that's how oh. Zuby put it. I felt that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so 
So we come off the gold standard in the United States, and then the next thing is, what do you do with that situation? Because all of a sudden, those dollars are free-floating. They're not anchored to anything. So a few geniuses uh, at the time, and you could call them evil geniuses or whatever, but, but they figured this out, and they said, listen, we have to do something else. So the United States goes to the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia makes a deal. Let's make a deal. Tell you what, we will help you stay um, protected from everything. And what we're going to do as this country is we're going we're gonna to protect you, but you're going to have to trade your oil for dollars. And tell you what, you sell us oil, we'll give you dollars. But it would be best if those dollars went into U.S. Treasuries Absolutely. or the stock market. So, in fact, when we say petrodollars, it's not like there's dollars floating around out in the Persian Gulf, you know. Saudi Arabia sells us oil. There's two servers and two banks in New York City that exchange ones and zeros representing dollars. The oil comes here, but the dollars never leave the country. They stay here. And so check out the amazingness of this deal. Saudi Arabia gives us oil, which is amazing, and it's the lifeblood of any economy. And then we keep the dollars here in this country, which then end up going into our stock market, our financial markets, sometimes into our real estate markets. So, in fact, everything about those petrodollars was an advantage to the United States. What does Saudi Arabia get? Well, they get big, fancy bank accounts that say they got a lot of stuff called U.S. dollars in them. But we, the United States, had an exorbitant privilege that came from that. And so that's the, that's the game of the petrodollar. And so petrodollar recycling is this idea that all these people out there in the world are trading and they need oil. Everybody imports oil, needs dollars. So they're all importing dollar, you know, exporting so they can get dollars and then using those dollars to buy oil. And then, but those dollars come back to the mm -hmm. United States to get recycled back into our stock and our bond market. So it was a very virtuous circle on the way up. That headline I just showed you, Putin says Russia will enforce ruble payments for gas starting tomorrow, tomorrow, is the end, as I see it, of the petrodollar regime. It was fabulous on the way up. It's going to be ugly on the way down. Hold on to your seats. It's going to be really ugly. Mm -hmm. And by ugly, I mean people all over the world suddenly go, I don't need dollars. I need rubles. Or whatever oil gets priced in at that point, they don't need as many dollars. Well, there are a lot of dollars kicking around about 10 trillion offshore, as it were. And then what do you do when, when you have a trillion dollars and you say, I don't want these? I've never had that problem. I haven't yet either. But you and I may <laughs> at some point when we have those Zimbabwe uh, like, hundred trillion yeah. dollar notes. <laughs> as soon as that came out of my mouth, I, I yeah. thought, yeah. Yeah, I'll, I'll, get to, I'll get to, we might all get to experience that. A trillion dollars offshore that needs to not be in that anymore, what do you do? Well, you could buy other financial assets of other countries or typically you buy commodities. Mm -hmm. You buy oil with that. You say, I don't want the dollars, I just, but I do need the oil. While I still can, let me conduct this trade. Everybody starts doing that. Next thing you know, it looks like the price of oil is skyrocketing, mm -hmm. but it's not. The dollar is falling. That's right. Right? And by the way, that would be exactly something that I think China would not find unfavorable no. to its interests. No. So or Russia at this stage. So anyway, I feel like the trap has been sprung. We had 50 years with the petrodollar to sort of right our ship and, and do, we could have done good things with that grace period. And I feel like it got squandered. We didn't do a lot with it. And now we have extraordinary deficits, debts, IOUs, unfunded pensions, crumbling infrastructure. It's all a profound failure to, to save. And that is all true. And, and I'm terrified that we also have an addiction addiction to an addiction to the cheap 
um, petroleum. Yeah. That, yeah. That so much has been built and predicated upon that petrodollar. Think about suburban life. Think about sprawl. Think. Yeah. Yeah, keep going. I, I, this reminds me of something I just saw today. I have to pull this up. It, it terrifies me because I, I now am starting to make decisions in my own life and on my homestead about about what I can expect when when uh, gas and other resources are far less available and far more expensive. The way I live is going to become far less, and and I don't. I don't really live a fancy lifestyle. Uh-huh. I live on a little homestead in upstate New York. Go upstate New York. Um, and it's about to become increasingly uncomfortable, very difficult, and yep. it's going gonna, it's gonna to look different ways I really can't predict yet. You know what I love? And that's a conversation that a lot of people are going to have. What do you love? Well, this is going to be... So, listen, we're all going to have to toughen up a little bit, but I love... A little bit. I love being lectured by people who have no right lecturing me, right? It's like... Oh, was that me? No. It's this. It's this guy, the BlackRock president. And I consider BlackRock to be un- unusually entitled because the BlackRock is, is a company gets its money for free. We should have directly from the Federal Reserve. We should have villain music. We should. Since this is our first episode of Informed Consent, yeah. we need note to selves. We need evil villain music. At any rate, leaving my personal opinions about BlackRock and being okay. lectured by them aside, it's like getting a boating lecture from Captain Hazelwood, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, it was the guy who sank the Vex on Valdez. So BlackRock president says entitled generation now learning about shortages. I don't know why entitled comes into it, but his his sub point, which we go into here, is he says really for the first time this generation is going to go into a store and not be able to get what they want. I think if he extended it out, it's maybe maybe get what they need at the next stage. First stage is you can't get what you want. Stage two of shortages and inflation and supply chain disruptions and bad leadership is you can't get what you need. And he says, and we have a very entitled generation that has never had to sacrifice. So there's um, a pretty strong uh, sort of value judgment there about, he doesn't mention which generation, but That's right. I think we know who he's talking about. I think we do know. And here's where I'm probably going to anger people and I'm going to brace myself for it. Maybe even you. When I pause, I, I don't really like that message. And then I have to look at it carefully and say, but is there truth in it? I think there's some truth in it about sacrifice. I do. And I think about the uninterrupted economic prosperity uh, post, what, at least 1983. Mm-hmm. So I think about the generations that were born since and what life has been like versus we're in our 50s. It, it, it's a very different landscape for them. And I don't oh, want them is. to sacrifice in ways that are painful or unco- you know deeply uncomfortable, but I, I think it's going to happen. So while I don't like that message, I don't necessarily think it's wrong. I just don't like being lectured that by the BlackRock president. No, it's... <laughs> well, so I, I have many thoughts about that, and, and let, me, let me lay it on myself. I feel like I'm soft. Right. Mm. It's been easy for a long time. So that's why. So I titled. So as you, you when Grace came here, she started, she said, what's this? What's this in the studio? And I've thought through every piece, right, from the foam to the table surface, to the types of chairs. To, I, I, I think stuff through. Um, and so when I titled, I, I was thinking for a long time back in 2009, what am I going to call my this business that I'm putting together this website? And I called it Peak Prosperity. I did that for a couple reasons. I saw that we were going to hit a peak 
of prosperity, which could be this peak of entitled easiness. But I could feel the end of this easy life coming. And it was because of how easy fossil fuels had made everything mm. made it so easy we're sitting in a room right now we got this i got this little temperature controlled thing we got the 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 heat pump out there do we, do you like it 71 or 70 with 64 percent humidity i mean it's really that's right. easy that's right it's really easy it's so i kind of it's like peak of prosperity now if we had done like amazing things with that prosperity like we were all fully actualized humans with like big meaning and purpose and we're spiritually evolved and we took all that time but but a lot of what what has happened is that got squandered it did. for a lot of people it did right and i i think whole portions of my life you know back when i was drinking or uh as well so i now i'm fully engaged though. i've been fully engaged for years now because because it's game on Grace. you've been fighting the good fight well, for quite a while i have you I, have i'm pretty tired of that but it's game on like this is it game it's on. happening you know what helped me with this get my head around it what i'm not that? sure if anyone's listening is familiar with uh um bill mckibben yeah he he wrote a really amazing book called enough thinking about the limits of infinite growth and at what cost and he outlined a lot of of, of your points really well a very smart person once told me that enough is the gateway word to happiness. Ooh. Enough is the gateway, gateway word, word to happiness. Happiness, yeah. Mm. This person is an executive coach. They work with people who are very successful. They're CEOs, but they want to be more better at what they do. Mm. I and think we so, just ran up against a contradiction. Right. <laughs> Enough, but they want to be more. They want more. And, and so um, she'll work with them and she'll work with them for a while until she can get them to understand that the reason that they're not satisfied or happy even or fulfilled or actualized in their positions is because they don't they don't have enough yet. And so when is it, that's like, like that is the gateway drug It's like when you can finally have enough. So it's pretty easy to get to enough if enough in your life means I'm warm and I'm fed. You can get to that pretty easy in today's life compared to 300 years ago, yeah. or I will submit to you compared to 20 years from now. Yes, 20 years from now. Right. Because we're at, so here, these were the bombshells that happened. So <clears throat> the petrodollar going down the tank, that is a huge life-changing thing. If I could impress on everybody, that is the biggest event that's going down in your economic lifetimes. This is going to be, it's a regime change, the changing of the guard. It's going to be extraordinary and it's going to have huge painful consequences for the issuer of that petrodollar, which will be the United States. There are a lot of complicated reasons why. But um, when it was 2018, my eyebrows shot way up on my forehead. I had to find them. They were over here somewhere. China's Beijing Petroleum University had come out and said, we're facing peak oil this year in China. And they did. And they've been over the peak of their oil ever since. Peak oil has been a dirty word in this country ever since shale came out and there are all these headlines. Ha ha, you were wrong, you peak oilist, because shale, right? And not understanding that when you're going into the shale, you're drilling into the parent rock that fed the reservoirs above. There's no sub-parent rock. Nope. There's no grandparent rock. That's right. right? None of that's happening. And it took forever for that to happen. Yeah, so December 2019, Russia comes out officially and says, we're at peak oil. And there, they can see it. It's not over. Peak oil doesn't mean it stops next Tuesday. But they can they say, that's it, and we're going like this ever since. All of Europe, their oil production is like this. The only place in the world that has had an explosive growth was the United States because we poured about a trillion and a half dollars, a lot of it lost, into drilling the parent rock. By the way, a tremendous ecological cost, by the way, and a tremendous opportunity cost because we threw a trillion and a half at that instead of something else. Like, I don't know, 
reforming our cities to be livable or something. I don't know. What, what strikes me when I think about um, the environment is once we alter it, it, it can't be unaltered. Once we go into that rock, it's we've done it. We've gone there. And at what expense? And was it worth it when we squander it? It just makes me so sad. Yeah. Now, there's places like uh, uh, the Permian Basin in Texas. The, the layers are so contiguous and so fat and so beautiful that you can actually punch through them. If you do it well and you cement it off and do that, that's fine. But when you're in West Virginia or you're in any of the Marcellus places, West mm-hmm. Virginia, Pennsylvania, New York, that's really fractured rock, sure. right? Like if you drive up through upstate New York or West Virginia Where you look I at, am. and you look sure. at the road cuts, mm-hmm. you see all the fractures, right? Yes. There's just like cracks. That's how the rock is. So when you punch a hole through that, good luck keeping that intact because there's just fractures everywhere, mm-hmm. right? And like you say, once you've done that, once you've made a hole in a rock that was there, it's been there sitting there doing what it's doing, maybe holding an aquifer for the last I, 60 million if you years. Touch that aquifer. If you touch an aquifer that's been faithfully aquifering for 60 million years, you've just done something that it's, it's going to take a while That's right. to undo, <laughs> naturally, yeah. like and, and 10 so million years or more. Coming back full circle to activism, that's why I thought to myself, if anything's worth jail time, mm-hmm. this is it. Did you ever go to jail? It's, I, have, I have not served time yet. <laughs> uh, have you been arrested? I sure have. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And those have been amazing educational opportunities. And I and as I say that, I take really seriously that that that's a risk. Yeah. And I know that um, I've I've been very fortunate to to not have suffered more for the for the causes that I've taken up. Did you ever feel like you you um, were treated unduly harshly by the police? Did you ever? I mean, I, I've seen some it, of the some it, of the some of the stuff that's happened in riots of late or in protests of late, where the police are aiming at people's faces with their non-lethal beanbag weapons and all that. It's it's so interesting. Um, I what comes to mind immediately is uh, Robert McNamara's "Fog of War." Yeah, I have seen things in protests and activism uh, that speak to me. And you know, this is going to sound a little Dostoevskian, but. I, I really remember that everybody is a candidate for humanity. I mm-hmm. have seen the very best of people on the front lines, and I have seen the very worst. Uh, have I been roughed up? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, but I'm but I'm sitting here, and do I go back? Yeah. And I've been treated amazingly well too. Um, what I find, and I'm, I'm so nervous, I'm going to sound super Pollyanna-ish. Mm-hmm. I don't want to. I want to be a realist about this. But what I find is that when I can remember to extend my humanity to everyone around me in a protest, it matters. It changes the tone. If I can keep my humanity and I don't other people. Like I was, uh, I think I might have told you, I was at the um, the induction of um, Madeline, Madeline Albright the induction to the Women's Hall of Fame in Seneca Falls. Yeah, that's how I felt on the inside. The face you just made, mm-hmm. I don't know if people can see it, but that's how I felt about Madeleine Albright, yeah. who had called uh, Iraqi children collateral damage. I felt really strongly opposed to her being inducted into the women's. As a feminist, she was being inducted into the Women's Hall of Fame, and I said, I, I really can't let this happen. Mm. And so when I went to protest... Um, there were some, it was a hot sunny day, it was 1998, I think it was July, 
And I was getting sunburned, brought out my sunscreen. And I noticed that one of the police officers that was standing directly in front of me with a, a police dog, that's a real thing, and it was terrifying, mm-hmm. he was getting sunburned. And so I, I just <laughs> didn't think twice, and I offered him some sunscreen because he's a human. Mm-hmm. He's a human, and he was being sunburned. And he, he didn't take it, um, but he's a human. He's somebody's brother. He's somebody's father or son. He's a human, mm-hmm. and he deserved kindness no matter what. And I think that you talk about the, well, let's return to the narrative. If the narrative can convince us that it's left, right, mm-hmm. rather than up, down, they win. Yeah. And, and it extends to situations like that. And if they can convince us to other yeah. Because you just use that word other, othering, yes. right? Which we've just seen in Canada, just shockingly. Because I always thought the Canadians, they were our kinder, kinder, nicer neighbors. You yeah, know? right? They turned out to be even worser in some respects than. Got to be careful with the who the they is. Okay, let me be very specific. <laughs> Trudeau, everybody who supports him, <laughs> yeah. and Christian Freeland, who's, sure. who has a very checkered past, by the way, who mm. is the um, finance minister up there. And, and she. Um, wrote a very sort of, uh, let's say, less than honest um, autobiography about her wonderful grandparents who were just yes. seeking freedom in Canada. But in fact, her grandfather, who she was speaking of, uh, wrote editorials for some of the most notorious Nazi propaganda rags out there and, and openly extolled the killing of Jews. Um, it was very open about all of that. And she's managed to whitewash all of that. I'm just, I was just trying to like, here's the thing. I hate hypocrisy. And I could only imagine if Trump had had anybody like that anywhere, anywhere in his administration, let alone right. taking that person and making them their, his right-hand person, the hue and the cry would have been extraordinary. Absolutely. Right? There's nothing said about that. Of course except, not. Except, you know, for people to notice things like that, right? Because it wouldn't have served the narrative. I know. What is the narrative? Oh. We only have two hours. <laughs> I don't even know how much time we have left. What is the narrative? So this is what we've been wrestling with. You know, I, I poke at it on my weekly updates and I'm I'm dancing around it all the time. And you can feel the narrative. So I can feel the nudge, the nudging narrative. The nudging narrative wants me to comply, not ask questions, wants me to stay firmly in my little tiny lane, wants me to feel powerless, wants me to... Give up your medical sovereignty. Give up every sovereignty. Mm-hmm. All my privacy wants me to give up um, everything. But But... And it fundamentally, if I could be honest about this, the keepers of the narrative do not, could not care less. It's not personal. They're not trying to kill me. They just don't care if I live or I die. I have a darker outlook than do you? that. I do. You know? Where's that come from? Gonna, All right, what I'm is it? Where's it come from? <laughs> from the Pollyanna hat to the. the all right, so we're going to go from one. from all the well, great, wonderful, loving things. They inform each other. That you bring I, to a protest too. You said you don't think they care if you live or die. Well, if if we're looking at the data, uh huh, we want to go there. Well, you're right. It should be a coin flip. Should you be. know, if if it was agnostic, if this was a unloaded die, it should come up each number equally. But you're saying, in your experience, that tends to fall to snake eyes in the dice. Yeah, snake eyes. Too it many is. times, huh? All right. What's your data? Oh, uh, well. I think it, it boils down to this. It's this simple for me. And again, this hurts. I wasn't I wasn't expecting to have this emotional of a response to these questions, mm. but I think it's because I really love people. And you were talking about when oil is gone, mm. 
do I have a roof over my head and do I have food on the table for myself? But I worry about other people too. And so here's what it boils down for me, the data. Mm-hmm. I keep hearing an awful lot, less, less these days, but I keep hearing an awful lot, Chris, about build back better. You ask me not to swear, but I have to. That's bullshit. And here's why. If they really wanted, the, if the, the ruling elites and the oligarchs or the policymakers, the, I want to call them the predatory class, if they really meant that, that would have happened in 2008. But it didn't. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's the beginning data point for me. Every time I hear build back better, you know what I hear in my head? Bullshit. Build better bunkers. Build better bunkers. <laughs> you gotta. So, right now we're on the precipice Ugh. of the potentiality of a nuclear war. That's right. That's the reality of where we are right now. Because in the fog of war, as you mentioned before, things can happen, right? So it could be that we have a coronal mass ejection. We just had a big one, right? Our magnetic sphere is a little light. Maybe communications go down across Russia at a very tense moment. And all of a sudden there's a, a major sitting in a lonely silo somewhere, not knowing what to do, thinking that maybe this is it. And they make a decision, right? We saw that the USS Vincennes shot down an, an airliner, a civilian airliner, right within its box because it misinterpreted some signals, right? So things can happen. We have that going. And we had Putin coming out constantly saying, oh, by the way, if this goes in certain directions, this gets hot. Mm-hmm. So we have all of that happening all at once, right? And so what does my country do about that? Well, I saw an ABC reporter saying, why aren't we willing to risk World War III with Putin over Ukraine? And I'm thinking, lady, did you even could you even find Ukraine on a map three weeks ago? Can you not can you, three weeks ago? Right now? Can you even do it now? Can you give me a compelling reason why we're this wrapped I, up around Ukraine? I think there needs to be a rule that anyone on social media that has changed their profile picture to uh, a Ukrainian flag has to at least be able to identify it on a map first with no names. That, with no names. <laughs> no That's, names. Yes. <laughs> This is a rule. Yep. We've just passed our first edict for, Correct. for all so, listening. So, but in the face of that, what, what does your country do about it? My country does nothing, right? But I read that Switzerland took all, made sure that all of its bunkers were topped up. Like these are physical, like fallout shelters, right? They have, the food is in there, it's fresh, their water's been replaced, and the people know how to get to them, and they ran an actual drill. Putin did the same thing, not once, but twice in Russia, 2014, and then again, 17 or 18, took 40 million people in his country into the bunkers mm-hmm. so they understood where they were. Yep. I don't, I bet we used to have them. You know, you've seen the little signs. I bet we don't even have them operative well, anymore. It's interesting as I was driving here. But isn't that what a country does that it, cares about its people? Yes, of course. Preparedness, yeah. resilience. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, when I was driving here, I was looking at the neighborhood schools and different structures and thinking because Evie is one of my best friends, your Evie is one of my dearest and best friends, and I was thinking, okay, they could go here, they could go there. That's how my mind works these days because I believe that we're that close. Um, I I was reading about a summer ago Daniel Ellsberg's The Doomsday Machine, and it's... Of the Pentagon Papers? Yes, Mm -hmm. Daniel Ellsberg of the Pentagon Papers. He... uh, he chronicled the, the points in history when we were terrifyingly arrayed, just so close yeah. to annihilation. It's frightening. So I, that's I, how my mind has been thinking. Yeah, about I read it. about one of those moments. So JFK, this is in the Cuban Missile Crisis. He's at his desk. He's in the Oval Office. And he's surrounded by his advisors and the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And all of them are yelling at him, push the button, push the button, right? It's a, it's a, and 
because of his character, we did not push that button. But that was it. That was it. That's how close we got. One dude with moral fiber because all of his surrounding staff were, were yelling at him that he had to push the button in that moment. And if we had, you and I wouldn't be sitting here, right? It's a whole different world. So that's how close we got. And I only imagine that same scenario, but with Biden in the chair or Obama or Trump or I just I don't judge any of them to have the moral character necessary to withstand that sort of pressure. I, I could be wrong. But I, I don't how think I see you're it. wrong. Um, I think about moral character and then I also think about cognitive competence. And that's that's a that's another factor that we really shouldn't take off the table. Um, you were talking about bunkers, mm-hmm. <laughs> build yep. bunkers. Well, that's one of the things that I've been thinking about for my own little homestead. Where would I go? How do I prepare it now? Mm-hmm. What do I need? And and for the folks that are out there in the Peak Prosperity Tribe, um, there's a lot of you that I know from events with you at Row mm-hmm. and different seminars. Uh, and I just want to say that I bet you are doing what I've done and trying to figure out what's necessary to to survive and how to get it together in short order. I think that's necessary and helpful information for people who are likely very scared. This is terrifying mm-hmm. and, and angry. And this is a way that we can take care of ourselves and possibly those in our communities too. Yep. Yep, I see Greg says uh, he was taught to hide under a desk in school. Oh, duck and cover. Duck and cover? Did you ever do that? Uh, no, I didn't do duck and cover. We had uh, we had uh, other things. We mm-hmm. had Red Dawn. We would play Red Dawn as, as little neighborhood kids yep. in the 80s. Yeah. Good times. Yeah, so duck and cover is a feel-good. I'm not sure how much that would really do. but um, So at any rate, the tensions are really big, and I think that serious people – have to take it pretty seriously. And and that's why I do what I do. I don't think we have serious people in charge right now. Um, Fauci is not a serious person to really be running a national health strategy. Uh, Rochelle Walensky is a joke of a human being. I mean, she might, I'm sure she's very nice, but she's just not up to the task of running the CDC, even remotely. Um, And and so we have very many non-serious people in positions of power, which is why you have to get serious about how you're going to take responsibility for your own resilience. That's why I do what I do is I want people to be resilient. Why? Because somebody's got to be there to help rebuild all this when it's rebuilding time. I don't think we're close to the rebuilding time. I think it's going to be a little while yet. We go through some darkness first. I think we've got an economic crisis that's extraordinary because we didn't. Paul Volcker, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, (laughs) six foot five, cigar chomping, Texan, absolutely couldn't rattle this guy. Unbelievable. He was asked in an interview, hey, Paul, Mr. Volcker, before you took the chairmanship of the Federal Reserve, if they had told you you would you were going to have to raise short term interest rates to 21 percent. What would you have done? And he said. I would have curled up under my desk and cried. Right. I mean, he meant it. it's like he was the only Federal Reserve chairman, but not the last, I predict, to be burned in effigy on the Washington Mall. Mm-hmm. So so. But we don't have somebody of that character. Jay Powell, not a chance he's going to rant. You can't, you can't even find a way to, he raised interest rates a quarter point. <laughs> you know, in, in the face of inflation that's as high as it's been in 40 years, he took interest rates from zero to just over zero in totally insufficient, right? So because we don't have serious people who are capable of making hard decisions right now, that's why I think our community resilience, our personal resilience, our household resilience Absolutely. is the most important thing. And it's within our control. 
that's by and large within our control. You you wrote a book that helped change my life. I was I, on the way here. I was thinking about the top ten books of that mm-hmm. have helped shape my life. I, I'm a big fan of the Dark Horse podcast mm-hmm. with Brett and Heather. And uh, a little while ago, they did a similar thing. In your book uh, with Adam Taggart, Prosper, mm-hmm. that that was foundational for me in changing how I approached my life, where I live, how I live, what I consider wealth, um, how I cultivate community. It's good stuff. And that's still available, right? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yep. Yep. Do for a rewrite, but it's, it's yeah, it's a good, it's a good book. So uh, for those who don't know, Prosper asks the question, how do we become resilient? And it builds across eight forms of capital. So a lot of people, when you say time to get resilient, they think, I need Beans. Where do I start? I need, you know, they think material capital. They, and that's not wrong. Material capital is important, but most people begin and end there, right? So they think about getting some stored food. Maybe they think about maybe getting some ammunition, some things like that. So that's great. Uh, and I'm a big fan of, of having a resilient homestead and making sure it's well insulated. And so you can use as little energy as possible to be as comfortable as possible. I'm a big fan. But that's just one of eight forms of capital. We talk about financial capital. It's obviously important to safeguard your wealth in a period of time when your currency is getting shredded and there's, you know, the whole world of investing is is just basically a scam. Mm -hmm. So there's things you can invest in, thinking more like a business, like I'm going to put money into my house's insulation today so that I spend less in the future. That's a capital investment in reducing your future expenditures, right? So so we, we help people reframe their thinking around that a little bit, but social capital is more important than either of those other two. I interviewed this guy a while ago, um, a while, probably seven years ago now, Philip Haslin. He wrote a book on Zimbabwe. So Zimbabwe had this punishing inflation. We just you know, side-referenced it, this whole idea of having a hundred trillion dollar note, right? They had one of those. Um, at the end of their punishing inflation. So guess what? There were people in Zimbabwe who saw it coming and they said, I'm going to get some gold. I'm going to get some stored food. I'm going to get ready for this. And they did that. And that those preparations lasted them like a year, year and a half if they were lucky. That inflationary cycle burned for nine years. So he asked the question at the end of nine years, who survived, who didn't, and who thrived? And the answer was who had the best social capital. Mm -hmm. Because this isn't just how many people you know, but how much you can trust them because there were always, whatever you need, there's always an economy. If there's humans there, there's an economy. If there's an economy, there's things that you can procure, but you have to know people have the trust. Inside Fort Leavenworth Prison, Supermax, tonight, there's an economy. I don't think they're trading dollars, but people can get all kinds of stuff in the middle of a Supermax prison. So point was, He said the social capital was the number one determinant of how well people did in that crisis that lasted for nine years. Right. Right. So so I took that to heart and said, oh, that's really important, this thing of social capital, including how well you know people, how much you can trust, really trust. That was one of the major challenges when I tried to put Prosper um, into action, when I tried to operationalize that in my life. and. I'll be honest. When you were when you were giving the presentation, I thought, oh yeah, that one. I'm the the shy introvert. Remember? Uh-huh, uh-huh. I thought, oh, I don't really need people. <laughs> what malarkey! What foolishness is that? Well, it turns out that I really do, because it's going to be really tough to do an awful lot by myself, and I need people. 
Mm-hmm. I'm going to meet a lot of people. And so I've started to make friends who have different skill sets. And there's amazing people in the peak prosperity community. Uh, Anne and Carl, if you're listening, you've taught me so much about permaculture mm-hmm. and how to how to create um, root cellars and how to think with, as you describe it, a fast forward so that I can maximize my resources in a short amount of time. So that that tribe that I've developing in my own backyard yeah. really matters. So now you're talking about um, one of the other forms of capital, living capital. Yes. So that's the health of our own bodies. Yeah. But more importantly, or as importantly, our bodies are in relationship with the world around us, so it, it includes the natural world. So this broadcast is coming to you from the studio here in western Massachusetts, where Evie and I live on a, a little farm. And so we've got three cows, about 30 chickens, pretty big garden um, that's doing better and better. We're improving the soil. And we're not so much farmers as we're soil becoming soil management experts. And since we didn't know what we were doing, we outsourced it to the cows, who turns out know exactly what they're doing. They are soil management experts. Cows know how to be cows. They know how to cow. And it's amazing. They stomp on the grass and eat it and poo on it and pee on it. And the grass loves it because it's done in the right cadence. It's just almost like nature had a plan. So, Do you know what that's called in the cow world? What's that? It's called the zone. This is true. I learned this from Joel Salatin. It's called the zone of repugnance. That's what they create. Sure thing. So 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 they won't go where they've just been. That's I've right. noticed it's, they won't. They the won't. zone of repugnance. If they've been there before, they're like, nah, they mm-hmm. don't want it. But, um, and and so, as much as I've learned about how defective, if not destructive, the medical system really is, and it's gross. And and Evie's got a big story to tell about this and her own struggles within that medical system. And a lot of people have their own stories. It's gross. Okay. We have a sick care system, not a healthcare system. It's there to maximize profits and make sure that doctors don't get in trouble. So, hey, not all of them though, right? So you've got, you, you do have your Peter McCullough's and Pierre Corey's and, um, and just amazing, amazing doctors like that who have full of integrity Mm -hmm. there to help. They, that's what they live, eat, breathe. So that's amazing. This living capital, though, let me talk to an, another area, which is around food and food production. Our food system is actually like this with our sick care system. And they hand in glove, two peas in a pod, however, whatever metaphor is, but but one feeds the other um, in this story. And so the extent to which, so <laughs> one of my favorite comments when I was back in the day when I was doing all the COVID, daily COVID uh, videos, I would always end with plant a garden. And that's because I saw these supply chain disruptions coming far, far in advance. And one of my uh, favorite comments was somebody under that said, I'm beginning to think this is a guerrilla gardening channel, right? With this big elaborate like story of COVID to like lure people into the plant a garden um, cul-de-sac that I was putting out. But I believe in it. And I believe in it because that food that you can grow in your own garden is healthier than anything you can buy because of the loss of nutrients. Yes. You might buy a big, beautiful head of organic broccoli, but it might have practically none of the magnesium or calcium that would have been there in your grandmother's mm-hmm. broccoli taken from just up the street or wherever it came from. So our food system is a whole other area to look at. A lot of study. Easiest way to get around that is plant your own garden and tend to the soil and make sure that you're putting good nutrients back into your own garden. You'll be healthier. You'll be happier. There's a lot of reasons I'm for it, but but just as importantly, I truly, that like, I'm early to stories. That's that's my gift and my curse. Um, I'm a little early. I was, you know, I started telling people to start a garden two years ago, and I'm going to say it again today. I still don't think we need it for another year or two, but I think we're going to need it 
like from a calorie standpoint, I think people need it already from a health standpoint and a vitality standpoint. Yeah. How are you describing, um, a few years ago, you were describing um, calorically, uh, I think you said it was 10, on the average dinner plate, 10,000 calories came from fossil fuels? No, it's that of every calorie that was on your plate, a minimum of 10 calories of fossil fuels were embedded in that. So let's say I take a big old bite of rice Mm -hmm. and there's 50 calories and that big old bite because it's got a lot of butter on it. Um, there, but it would have taken... No judgment. None. I love butter. 5,000 calories of fossil fuels would have been in that to make that get there for you. We're right. eating oil. I'm eating oil. In large part, we're eating oil. And so yeah. one of the things I would share about... Um, you said we're not there yet. We might have a few more years before the, the backyard garden is necessary. Is needed. Is needed. I, like... And so, they, again, it won't be all at once, it but won't we're going to glide right into that story. Until it is. Correct. It won't be all at once until it is. It'd be so like the, going broke, right? Yes. Slowly. The, slowly. Then until all at once. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Um, what I've learned through lots of failure, lots of failure on, on my homestead, is that time matters. In, For example, I sent you some photos in preparation of t- for today of, of some of the things that I've grown. I, I grow the world's ugliest carrots they're pathetic oh they're pathetic why because they're stunted and short (laughs) they're so stunted carrots are tough to grow here's here's what i've learned carrots are surprisingly tough to grow um they like it sandy they're a little temperamental probably boring everybody to tears but here's the thing start now start now um you can ride that learning curve more comfortably when you have backup possibly available at the grocery store or at the farmer's market. Now is when you want to experiment and uh, build on your failures. So and the other thing that I learned, uh, I learned that the carrots that I grow, and this might be biased talking, but they taste so much better. Well, you know what I learned from um, Christian of the Ice Age Farmer? And I hadn't thought about it, but the minute he said it was like a bell went off. And he said... Listen, wherever you get your seeds, you get these beautiful heirloom seeds, right? Or you get your F1 hybrids from Burpee, whatever they are. You grow them, and this is that seed's first experience in that soil. Yes. It might have come from thousands of miles away Mm -hmm. or hundreds, but it came from a completely different place. Mm -hmm. And just like humans do, they equilibrate through their genetics into the local area so that if you can grow and then regrow and keep seeds and regrow, something magic happens over those first few years where the plant figures out where it is. Right. You know, this is this soil. It has this chemistry. It's got this pH. It's a little light on this. It's got a lot of that. It's a living thing. Yeah, it adapts in response to its environment. Imagine that. Imagine that. It passes that adaptivity onto its offspring so that it can be better adapted it's amazing and watching it happen gets me all excited i sure do keep what do you keep what do you keep seeds of Uh, you name it that's a long conversation okay that i like to hear that it's a long conversation (laughs) i'm in love with my seeds there's an amazing woman um in my neighborhood and up in the finger lakes she started a business because she loves seeds too her name is petra and she has a business that's just beautiful it's called fruition seeds and that's the only place where i'll go Mm. she has a free seed academy uh, that helps newbies figure out how to get things to germinate Mm. and what seeds like and where to plant them and how to how to transition them from inside to outside depending upon your zone so i would check that out it's the free seed academy through fruition seeds and that's that's where i get all my stuff awesome so let, let's how long have you been have you been at this homesteading thing would you say 
Uh, well, it's funny. I uh, I did an online quiz in 2010. That said, First row was how, 2009. How you? green are you? <laughs> and I thought, oh, I'm super green. Turns out I really wasn't. Okay. And it <laughs> and it shocked me into changing. Mm-hmm. So that's when I started with I think my first radishes. Radishes is good. That's a good thing to start right. with. They they always sprout. <laughs> They're only this deep yeah, in the ground. <laughs> right. That's why I, I was trying to build on success. And and now we're really lucky to have um, a mixed orchard with peaches and cherries and grapes and it's it's tough even though here's the next thing i've learned as people start to think about what they can do even if it grows everything in nature wants it so yeah even if i get peaches the squirrels get there first Mm -hmm. and they take one bite and they drop it on the ground bastards bastards (laughs) yeah they're they're part of the narrative well well, let's talk about the so can we talk about the honest side of homesteading? Yes. How many things have you killed inadvertently? Uh, more than have survived. I, I'm like a serial terrible gardener. It's, it's, it's just it's part criminal. of the game, though, isn't it? It is. You like, it's impossible to. I don't think there's any other way to learn than to just do it. I just don't. Got to do it. You got to just do it. And I'll tell you something. Somebody just asked me, like, how you know? Oh, how many cows have you had before these? I'm like zero. <laughs> This is zero it. many. That's zero what... many. The interesting thing for me is when things make it. Yeah. Like my elderberries are starting to have tiny little buds. My currants are starting to have tiny little buds. Uh-huh. And they were grown from shoots. And uh, I, I feel such a connection with them that they're going to make it. And th- that's that's something I didn't know before. That when I go into the grocery store and I just pull it from the shelf... It's too easy. Um, and now when I, and, I, and I, if we're going to get real honest about failures, mm-hmm. sometimes in my busy life, you know, as a former academician, I would let things go bad. I would, I would think, oh, I'm going to buy all of this healthy food. I don't know if anyone else out there is guilty of this, but I would think I'm going to buy all of this healthy food, straighten up, fly right, and it would go bad. Mm-hmm. And now when I'm so invested from the seed point on, I don't really do that. Hmm. It's more personal. Yeah. Do you, do you find that? I do. Last year was a tough year for me um, because uh, reasons, but I, I ended up taking over Peak Prosperity as a sole proprietor again um, and reforming the team. And so there was a lot of sort of gyrations in, in my personal life. And it started... Um, we consummated the swap over on May 12th. Okay. And so June, July, August, you know, the first 30, 60, 90 days of like getting this ship to fly right again. There was, there was a lot of drama around that for me. Um, I didn't get my, my garden suffered a lot. Yeah. Um, Cause there's just a critical window in June to plant. The window. And then there's another critical window. If you don't weed quickly, oh. they take over oh. and then it's just depressing. Oh. Oh, I live that. Last year, I decided to be a little bit laissez-faire. Mm. <laughs> wasn't my best call. That yeah. wasn't my best decision. Won't be replicating that, hopefully. Mm. Me neither. I'd have no. zero intention. No, I bought extra weeding tools this year. Like, you know. Yeah. See, <clears throat> the things we get excited about. Yeah. So, um, but when you first started, mm-hmm. friends and family, they were all like, did, did you did you get the questioning sort of like, you might be oh. crazy? Oh, did you get that? The questioning. No, I got declarative statements. <laughs> You're nuts. <laughs> you are crazy. What is? It, at first, it was people were just mystified, and they thought it was a little bit of a joke that I'd grow out of it. Yeah. 
And then there was pity. Like, oh, what's happened to you? You're making terrible decisions. And uh, I, I should be gentle because I love these people. And they're caught up in the dominant discursive of the way it ought to be. And I'm lucky that people like you helped me realize and connect dots that I had to make changes while there was time so that when reality comes knocking, it, it, it won't be shoved down my throat. I'll, I'll be able to make choices but is, perhaps are, are on my own But are people turning terms. a little bit? Um, so now this is the part that gets uncomfortable for me because I don't want to have any schadenfreude. Mm -hmm. I think that would be unattractive. Um, when COVID happened and shelves were getting um, more and more bare, mm -hmm. people started to reach out and say, ooh, you, you're right. Mm -hmm. And oh, would you help me um, learn how to um, garden? Would you help me talk to me about soil and compost? Love to talk about compost. Yeah, compost. Oh, compost, yeah. yeah. So it started to turn and... And that saddened me a little bit, but a few remained, and so I'm going to focus on them. And I saw in the chat that a lot of people are asking about where to start, and I think that's an excellent conversation. Where to start, how to, how to start. Start with what? Gardening? Yes. Like, here's a comment about okay. cardboard. Tab wrote, cardboard is useful under the mulch. Yeah, absolutely. Trying to, to uh, retain moisture. Good stuff. So this is really what you were talking about in Prosper. People have in the collective lots of wonderful ideas. Yeah. You want, you want to know one of, one of my favorite stories? Yes. Um, so I was down in Mexico City, and, and we were uh, at an event where Robert Kiyosaki was there, and he has a bunch of advisors. Uh, Kenny McElroy, Darren Weeks were there. And there's 800 people in this room all wanting to learn the secrets of being entrepreneurs, right? And so mostly real estate investors, all this and that. So this guy, Darren Weeks, stands up and says, Okay, hey everybody, I'm here to tell you I'm gonna teach you about the, the secrets of raising capital, but first, there's gonna be a test. You're gonna have five questions and you're gonna to have to write them down. The person to your left is gonna grade your test. Uh, and so I'm gonna ask these five questions, go. The whole room goes dead quiet. All you hear is like pens and click, <laughs> click, you know, and it's rustling like the, a paper, right? The trapper keepers go up so people can't look at your answers. Dead quiet, <laughs> right? That was an obscure 1980s reference, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. But I, I got it. So, Thanks. So, um, so he, he shoots out five really random questions. What was the price of gold yesterday? What was the vice president of the United States three vice presidents ago? Um, what do you think the temperature is right now in, in Anchorage? Right. And he gets up to question five and says, just kidding. Nobody's going to score this. <sighs> you know, he said, I just want you to notice what happened. I went into school mode and oh, everybody sure. here slipped into school mode. Mm -hmm. You all knew exactly what to do mm -hmm. and you went into a competitive thing because yes. as soon as I told you you're going to be scored by the person left of you, mm -hmm. a lot of you probably froze up because mm -hmm. you know and you have all this thing. He said, but that's because school had trained you to behave in a certain way. He said, I didn't tell you you couldn't ask other people. To be a successful entrepreneur, yes. you will know that there's not a question I could think of where somebody in this room wouldn't know the answer. Yeah. And I didn't say you couldn't ask other people. And, but and what you know did what you else? do? You defaulted into, I have to do this myself. Oh, sure. <laughs> and I better get it right. Exactly. You know, the, 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 the reptilian brain kicks in and panic and the frontal lobe shut down. It's a terrible thing. So, you, so you know when people say, people... where do we get started? We have to start with unlearning the things yes. that we learned that don't serve us. I love it. That hold us back. Right? Yeah. And I think the key question there is to even put back to the teacher, Why? Why are you asking me this? Why do I need to know about 
the temperature in Anchorage if I'm if I'm in upstate New York. You know why? It's it you might, mm-hmm. but contextualizing that matters too, right? That's an aspect of power, not just sitting down, shutting up, being obedient, and and accepting spoon-fed information or the validity of spoon-fed information. Yeah, it's it's asking why. Well, this is I I really took a lot from that, which is. Um, Again, you know, I grew up at a time when school said, well, they would sit down with you, say, these are your weaknesses. Let's find a plan, right? To the entrepreneurs out there, they would say, these are your weaknesses. Hire them. These are your strengths. Live them, right? You know, don't spend a minute on your weaknesses if you don't need to, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Unless those are preventing you from doing what you need to do over here. So, So it's just, it's kind of backwards. The whole idea that there's a right answer and a wrong answer, that really isn't true, right? Yes, and you know, and I in think a lot that, of cases. So, it, the other part that I would tease out in that example is that how one is educated, in large part, depends upon how one is seen in the social hierarchy. So, not all people are educated in the same model. I mean, schools serve that sorting and uh, some some of the dumbest people I know function. have a lot of schooling. Absolutely. So, and yeah, some of the smartest have very little. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that that's. That's not where I score intelligence. To, to me, intel- education is um, often just assembly of knowledge. Sure. But wisdom is connecting dots between things. Yes. And seeing the, how everything sort of connects into larger patterns, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So, so. Yeah, I'm, I'm very humbled again by you're talking about homesteading and yeah. gardening. Yeah. I, I realize my place in this hierarchy very quickly when I can't outsmart chickens. And I can't. <laughs> On a daily basis, those chickens get the best of me. All right. So the reason I, I raised that whole thing about the schooling and all this, because the question came up, like, how do you get started? And the answer is, you just get started. You just have to get started. So so this, you got to just strong forward into it. Be willing to make mistakes, because school would teach us, our culture would teach us that making mistakes is a bad thing, or you wouldn't want to do that, or they can hold people back. Oh my gosh, I might kill my chickens. It might happen. It might not. But my advice is you just got to get started. And so um, in this environment, activity is more important than anything. Just just getting started. Yes. That's, that's it. Just yeah. do it. Just start. Yeah. Embrace the failure. Exactly. Yeah. Speaking of education, there's a really great article by, uh, it's, it's old, but it's by a great thinker named Eleanor Duckworth, and it's called The Having of Wonderful Ideas. And she talks about the importance of failing. And how to just how to learn to fail better, which is an entrepreneurial standpoint too. Fail, yeah. fail fast. Fail fast, fail better. Well, sure. I mean, if you hire somebody, it's not working out. Figure that out quickly, not not slowly. Mm-hmm. Um, if you are trying a process that's losing you money every time you run it, don't run it anymore. Um, things like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, this resilience becomes really, really, really important. I think because of. Let me see if I can find this piece I'm, I'm looking at here. Um, so where would I start with this story? So let's look at, um, Aaron, let's pull this up. So this is a, a, this is a little wonkish. Stick with me for a second. I'm going somewhere with it. This is from uh, the economic data from the St. Louis Federal Reserve. There's 12 regional, just like the Hunger Games. There's 12 regional banks. One of them is in the St. Louis region. They put out this beautiful website with tons of data in it called FRED. Um, I like that, Fred. So this is a chart of the Federal Reserve's assets. So when the Federal Reserve prints money, what it does is it goes out 
and clickety clicks on keyboards and will buy things and put them on its asset base. And so those things it buys are treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. Those principally, there's some other junk in there, but that's it. It's like 90% of it or more. So the Fed has been saying, because they're facing massive, massive, massive inflation, and we're all experiencing this massive inflation, I know you're experiencing it out there. It's really punishing right now. I've been, sh- I've been shot. I'm like, I'm a pretty careful shopper. I've had my first $500 shopping bills Oof. and that's a cart. Like all the bags fit back in the cart, right? It's not full of T-bones to the, to the rim, right? It's just, it's astonishing. So the reason that happened is because the Fed printed and printed and printed all this money. In fact, let me, let me just show you, let me take this down a, a tiny bit here. So th- this is what it looks like going back through time. So this is how much money the United States had in circulation, because when the Fed prints these things, this is money going out to circulation. So you see it going along here. And this is over, let me just put it this way, before this moment in time right here, in 2008, when we had our great financial crisis, that 909,982, let's call that 910, that's $910 billion of printed money put into circulation by 2008. So that $910 billion by 2008 represents Every single bridge built, field plowed, road paved, mm-hmm. war fought, education conducted, massage given, every piece of food ever consumed, every car built, sold, and scrapped. That took, through the inception of the Federal Reserve in 1913 up until 2008, it only took $910 billion for all of that to happen. And then since then, we see what happened here, right? It's astonishing. That was the first great financial crisis, and that looks amazing and and powerful and all of that. But when we open this out even further and we come up into current times, that little steep cliff we were sawing is just this little cliff back here. This is the Federal Reserve up through, and then here is, most people don't know this, but this is the coronavirus. Oh, we have to print because of corona. Do you see this little hump right here? Mm That's the repo crisis of uh, began in September 2019. I was warning people who were listening to me then. I was like, the repo markets are blowing up, and it's a very arcane piece. I don't know if we want to go into it, but it, there are these repurchase agreements. The financial plumbing of the United States, and by extension the world, was seizing up and threatening to go pear-shaped. It, was, it could have taken the whole system down. The Fed needed to print lots and lots and lots of money, but it had just finished that, and it was committed to unwinding all that printing, and it was trying, and it... The Fed tried to unwind a little bit of its printing, and it did so from here down to here, and then the system started to blow up, and Mm -hmm. so it started to print, and thankfully, COVID came along for the Fed, and it was able to print like crazy. Look at this. Interesting how that happened, that timing. Just so coincidental, I love coincidences. So Um, weren't you asking about data and snake eyes? Here's (laughs) another point. So so the Fed has recently come out and said, oh, we're – we're, 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 we've stopped growing our balance sheet. They committed to that at the beginning of March. It's now the end of March. And I want just people to notice here that the Federal Reserve has done nothing but continue its printing all the way through, even through March, hitting an all-time brand new high of printing right there at the end. So, so um, they just keep printing and printing and printing. And wait, let me carry this all the way out so we can see the end of it. So it's printing and it's just printing and printing and printing and printing and printing. Now, that's going to create a lot of hardship for people because this inflation is going to be very difficult to undo. And if the Fed tries to undo this inflation by walking its balance sheet back, we're going to have another financial accident. So the rock in the hard place for the Federal Reserve right now, as I see it, is do nothing and watch the dollar get immolated on, on high inflation that could actually ruin the dollar. 
could do that. Or have the financial markets get punished because they will go backwards. Stocks and bonds will both lose value. Lots of fantasy wealth will evaporate. We'll all feel poor. And as somebody said very waggishly on Twitter, he's like, when the stock market goes up, the rich get richer. And when the stock market goes down, I lose my job. That's right. Which is kind of how it works, right? Mm -hmm. So what, do, what, you know, pick your poison. Are we going to have this punishing, you know, fall in stock prices and things like that that causes the, the uh, recession in the overall economy and lots of people to lose their jobs? Or do we blow up the money system itself? They're going to pick this one. That's right. They always do. They have to. Because this kicks the can longer. And we were talking about that the other day. I'm I'm continuously amazed at the ability to kick the can continuously down the road. When is the quantity quantitative easing going to end you know somebody mentioned in the chat the the book by uh griffin uh, the the creature of jekyll island creature from jekyll island yeah. yes a wonderful book and you know i've met g edward many times stop it so i go on these real estate radio cruises with with uh robert helms and, and russ gray and it's just wonderful and he's always there and when i met him he's 84 spry as can be mm -hmm. like literally dancing little jigs up the hall and sharp Oh, sure. Sharp. Sure. Yeah, he still holds his Red Pill Expo and all that. and He's mm. sharp and Pat, his wife, wonderful, wonderful people. And um, and so I had the opportunity to interview him on one of those. And I asked him, I said, hey, Ed, when I go to your Wikipedia page, it says the word conspiracy theorist four times in your opening thing. Well-known American conspiracy theorist. And I said, so for a conspiracy theorist, you wrote this big fat book called Creature from Jekyll Island on the Federal Reserve. So... Because it's all conspiracy theory, you must have people must have picked it apart. How many times has you know? Just tell me what were the criticisms of it? And he said, "Chris, funny thing, I haven't received a single substantive thing where somebody said you got this fact wrong. That's right. You got this detail wrong. You've you've overextended your analysis here. Nothing." He said, "1998, the book came out. Not one credible." complaint about the substance of it just oh, sure oh when you put it that way ed sounds very conspiratorial <laughs> that, well and that's one of my favorite things about him is that he actually monitors that wiki page and i've heard him describe what a conspiracy theorist theorist is better than anybody else and it it, it gave me strength because i've been called a conspiracy theorist i'm gonna reclaim that term i might get it on a t-shirt because here's the thing he said, when the wealthy meet in secret to plot their um, their gain at, at the expense of the common person, mm -hmm. well, they're conspiring. And if, if you're not alert to that, there's much to be lost. And so I refuse to let that term be co-opted. You know, do you know the interesting thing about that term and its, uh, its history and the American historical landscape? Well, I just know that the CIA sort of threw it out there in the context of the Kennedy assassination. Yes, yes, the Warren Commission. So they they were starting to look at the Warren report at uh, some some kickback on on questioning the lone gunman, and the CIA said I think it was 1967. So it was a few years after the assassination. They said, yeah, we can't we can't have people questioning this. So we were going to have to shift these conspiracy theorists, mm -hmm. and that's that's the the origin story of that term in large part. So I'm, I'm glad that uh, Griffin has helped us reclaim it and said, wait a minute, because that's a stigmatizing term. That's a silencing term. And so for, for people listening, for people in the tribe, I'm sure that you've, you may have been called that. You might have been described that way. And so 
I feel that as you know, you and I and others like us, voices mm-hmm. in the wilderness on this landscape, we're we're gonna have to take a stance. Well, let's go there. Let's okay? go there. Let's go there. Let's go there because all of my conspiracy theories became facts last year. That's right. All what's, of them. What's the difference between the truth and a conspiracy theory? Six months. <laughs> <laughs> right. So they're no longer called conspiracy theories, right? They're right. spoiler alerts, Chris. Okay. So let's That's... let's let's take let's take one of them. Let's take one of them. So so I want to talk about censorship very quickly because I've faced a lot of it and there's there's overt censorship and then there's covert censorship. I've faced overt censorship. This channel has received strikes from YouTube for talking about unapproved things, um, such as Dwizabin 2, for those of you who remember from the day, but that's ivermectin. Um, I, had to, I had to come up with code words. I, I, was even, I would even made little signs, you know, in case the machine reading, you know, things couldn't like see my signs as I talked about banned subjects, right? And then there's soft censorship, which I experience all the time. It looks like this. I'm on Twitter. I come up with something. It starts to gain a lot of traction really quickly. You can watch like hundreds of likes pour in in the first few minutes. And then that's it. That's it for the rest of the day. It goes nowhere after that. I've actually watched like counts come off, right? And so that's soft censorship. And not, I'm not just sitting here as a dopamine junkie saying I need the likes, but I, but it that informs other people out there about how popular something is or how much attention they might or how much they might weight that material. And so I see this happen to people like Brett Weinstein. I see it happen to um, a lot of people who are in the, the truth space, as it were. Um, so the censorship is very real. We just saw that Chris Hedges got his entire channel mm. yanked off of YouTube um, for, I you know, I guess probably the association with Russian television, but it doesn't, they don't, listen, it doesn't really matter. So the censorship is, is really, really important uh, to all of us because if we can't talk about real things, see, as a scientist, it offends me because science is not a straight line. We found this, then we found that, and now we know this. There's all these wackadoodle theories, as, as Niels Bohr, the famous physicist, said, science advances one funeral at a time, mm-hmm. meaning there are people who hold on to dogmatic ideas that are wrong, but they hold on to them for a long time. Like the, the person who, in, who discovered the uh, role of sepsis and clean hands in not killing oh. patients, Semmelweis, yes. was through his whole career advanced that idea was hated by his entire profession of people who would go straight from an autopsy to delivering to a baby babies and you know, mothers yeah. wiping their you know mm-hmm. and then going into somebody they hated the idea that maybe they'd been complicit in, in things that had, that had killed people so what did they do they fought the man who came up with the idea he died a pauper right had absolutely the right idea so this idea that science is right and consensus is correct and that you know consensus science is reasonable has been disproven at every single juncture of history but now we're supposed to believe that we have it right that the cdc is to be believed because they have consensus science on their side it is the worst thing that could ever happen to science right so let me give you a quick story this is this is this is my favorite story so i got my phd in the mid 90s and i had to take all kinds of courses so i took molecular genetics things like that so i learned something dna is a string of four different letters gtac right and they're arranged in a specific configuration and if you take a certain sequence of those you get a certain protein so a certain sequence you get hemoglobin one of those letters is out of tune and next thing you know you have a bad hemoglobin protein and you have sickle cell anemia so there's very linear and your dna is this thing that you're born with and that's your genetics done right and it was very linear so then it was like five six years ago i'm reading about 
these stories, and there's always a great story, it begins with observation. Somebody observed, they were doing this, uh, we can talk about the ethics of the study, but they were taking mice and exposing them to cherry scent, because in your nose you have all these different receptors, but there's only one of those receptors for cherry, so it's got a very specific shape, so you can study it, whereas other receptors in your nose do lots of different things, you know. But this one, to smell cherry, nature said, you need a special receptor, a little cone-shaped thing for that. So they would spritz the cherry scent in, and they would shock these mice at the same time. Mm. <clears throat> Eventually, one day, the shocking machine wasn't work, but the graduate student had spritzed the cherry scent in and noticed that all the mice went into their little PDSD routine, mm -hmm. as if, right? Mm -hmm. That was observation one. Observation two was that the offspring of those male mice, when exposed to cherry scent, displayed PDSD. Mm -hmm. So... And that went on for many generations. They could breed, sure. rebreed, re and it slowly tailed off. But but it was it was it meant that the male mice had encoded an experience, oh, sure. put it into their somatic line, and passed it. So where our DNA is actually taking experiences from the outside, encoding them, and passing them on. Mm -hmm. Now, how it does that looks like epigenetics. There's methylation. It's not changing the DNA's lettering, but it, there's another. It's complicated. It's complicated. I would have told you guaranteed hands down that ma that mouse story was BS because of my training. Okay. Guaranteed. Oh. If I was rigid. Mm -hmm. But that's not how science works. And so I looked at that and it, everything I thought I learned about genetics, I was like, oh, going to have to change that because that's how I'm built. Right? I love changing. I like that's new information. But now we understand stuff. There was the studies of Dutch offspring of women who were starved in World War II are very obese humans because in utero, they'd received the instructions, hey, resources are tight. If you ever see any, store it, right? Sure. So that explained that. And then we see that the um, children of survivors of Auschwitz, very prone to anxiety and other things because that experience had been encoded and passed on through something called epigenetics. So now the world starts to make a lot more sense to me. Oh, for sure. Right. But only if I have an open mind and I'm willing to start to open up to that. My point being that this whole idea that we have censorship that has organized itself around the idea that there is a right answer and a wrong idea, wrong answer is completely the wrong thing for any time of history, but this one in particular. It's powerful. It's a really bad idea. It's a very bad idea. So to all the people out there who are busy soft-censoring, and if that's your role, you know, to soft-censor Brett Weinstein because he's saying unapproved things that, you know, make your, your pharma uh, sponsors unhappy. Well, tough, you know, that you're anyway, I think we're way off the rails. What's that? What's that saying? Hard men make good times. Good times make soft men. Soft men make bad times. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Bad times make good men, right? Or hard men make good times. So I think we're just at that. Maybe the BlackRock president, maybe I'm coming around a little. Maybe we do have a softness that needs to be addressed here. Yeah. But a softness of, of, of not being able to take critical thinking, a softness of not being willing to be exposed to new ideas. I, I, I think that people are open. More people are open-minded than closed-minded. I really believe that. I, I think that um, what you're talking about is so important in that the body does keep the score around trauma, and it helps us survive. Mm -hmm. And there's a wonderful book by uh, Gabor Mate about the, I think, when the body says no. 
and why it's important to listen. And I think we're touching on something that may be going even further off the rails, so forgive me. But it's not the body and the mind aren't separate, that notion of dualism. We're, we're holistic beings. And so there's a gift and an importance to paying attention, to paying attention when your body goes into that freak out place or feels anxiety. Those are signals. Mm-hmm. I'm a huge fan of, of the somatic experiencing line of thinking for, for trauma, for healing, for just understanding that the whole idea of, again, I was raised, you got your brain, that's driving everything, then there's this body thing, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, they're a lot more integrated than that. That carries the brain around. Yeah. So that's its job. Yeah. The, <laughs> yeah, the, the meat suit over the, the skeleton. The meat suit. That nice. carries the brain around. Mm-hmm. But in fact, that there is a huge intelligence. So now when I thought about it, I'm like, you know, the bee with 200,000 neurons, we can count them, can do the most amazingly complicated things. Yeah, I have, I have massive respect for my bees. So these bees, these little tiny, 200,000 is a tiny number of neurons that you can't even see it. It's a pinprick and they can find their way around, do complex problem solving, very, very bees complicated social constructs. There's honeybee democracy. It's Absolutely. astonishing. I know you yes. keep bees. It's, I- it's amazing. So my next question is, well, then what are we doing with three pounds of neurons in our gut? Well, it depends, right? I mean, that's a lot of information capacity that's that's just sort of hanging out there. So mm-hmm. when people say, oh, you know, do you trust your gut? I'm like, well, maybe, probably, yeah. I mean, that's a lot. Like, I'm just saying if the, if the bee can do all that with this little tiny thing, I bet you could run your run your gut as a, as a system with like a little tiny little, you sure. don't need three pounds of neurons. I mean, this is like a big, it's like another brain. It's literally, it's like a big old mass it sure is. Of nerves yeah. all hanging out down there. I, I understand. <laughs> I understand. And the importance of learning to trust it. But you were mentioning that the that the mice have PTSD. Yeah. And I think about human beings and the generational trauma and how that gets stored in a body. How, ma- how much wounding do you think goes on in our culture? So I, I hate to, to quote Lenin. But in this moment, what I'm compelled to say is that in in these days, I've been living decades. And in this time since the beginning of COVID, I feel that I feel that I have held so much trauma and I feel that I've experienced so much trauma. So what's happened to my body? What's happened to my gut? I'm in I'm a little bit of shock. Hmm. Say more about that. One of the things that's changed in me is uh, I have this background app that's constantly running on uh, a steady stream of existential angst. I'm constantly asking myself, is this the best decision I could be making at this time? And it's exhausting. And, for example, on my way here, I drove down the New York State Thruway, and I went into the store, and um, I was getting picking something up for Evie, and I was thinking, oh, should I pick this up? And will it be available? Thinking about supply chain issues. Will this be available? That that pause, that prick of anxiety, will this be available? I didn't carry that before. And it accumulates in my system. Mm-hmm. And like an unnecessary background app that I have open on my phone, it drains my battery and that energy I need for things like wonder, and as someone said in the chat, to feed my imagination. So uh, that changed since COVID, and I have a feeling that 
I, I need to do something productive with it to offload it. Um, one of the people wrote that having hands in the soil is super helpful. Mm -hmm. It grounds him or her. It does ground me, but I, I need far more um, access to offsets of increasing size because I'm carrying this anxiety. One thing that who's, also who's, happened who's, in the store, I, I need you to hear this part because this, this shook me up a bit. I, uh, I noticed that people were smiling at me. I, I could see people's faces again, mm -hmm. and they were smiling at me, and I realized, oh, they can see me. They can see my face smiling at them. Mm-hmm. And that pragmatic of human exchange, I'd, I'd really missed it. I'd really missed people. And how do we account for that loss? And how do I know where that's showing up in my body? Right. I, I know it is. So when you say anxiety, what, what, whose anxiety are you carrying? Is it anxiety for your own self or is it some other anxiety? Probably a mixture of the two things, Chris. Mm -hmm. So... I was thinking about myself. I was thinking about loving seeing people's faces. And I was thinking about, there was a little girl and she was wearing a, a frozen <laughs> the dress from the yeah. character Elsa in Frozen. She was wearing that dress. And I just, I, I missed seeing little kids in lockdown and I missed seeing Joy. And so I was just beaming at her. She was the cutest little thing. Mm. And she saw me and she smiled back. And I, that connection is, we're social creatures, and I needed it. And so that anxiety is built on a couple things. The awareness of how complicated and how fragile we are, um, and how much we really do depend on each other. I was using the word tribe a little earlier, and somebody wrote in the chat, I think my definition of tribe um, likely differs from, from Grace's. And maybe it does, but what I mean is this web of common humanity that we have immediately and that we have more globally. Um, and I was I was specifically referring to the peak prosperity people, uh, the people that I've met here that I love and that I've learned from. Um, so I feel that anxiety is a sense of potential loss for myself, and I do carry a fear that come this fall or sometime soon as has been written about by uh, Geert Vandenbosch mm -hmm. lately. I think yesterday he uh, wrote that he thinks that um, that we'll be experiencing more with COVID in the coming months and that it will be far more contagious than it was in the past. And I tend to listen to Geert. So the fear and the anxiety that I, ha that I carry is when are the masks coming back? Because we've been whipsawed. I have been whipsawed by wear a mask, don't wear a mask, have a mask, don't own a mask. Six feet, six feet doesn't mean anything. Back and forth. And so when science becomes science with a capital S, the, the religion of science, it does something really dangerous to my ability to trust and to anchor myself in truth. And then I become exceedingly vulnerable to their bullshit. And that narrative can enslave me. And that's the last thing I want. So if you're asking me why it hurts, that's why. Hmm. I've been feeling, um, it was encapsulated a little bit in, in, a, in another waggish sort of tweet I read a number of months ago. It said, unfortunately, COVID has killed a lot of my heroes. Mm. Just none of them died from the disease. Ooh. So I found out that I, I found out that I'm more lonely than I thought. Okay. 
the good news is I found out that, you know, who, who my intellectual heroes and, and moral giants are, right? So the Geert Van den Bosch's and the yeah. Pierre Corey's and the Robert Malone's and the Joe Rogan's. And, and, and the, the Jordan people, Peterson's. Jordan Peterson's. People who are willing to stand up and say what's right, oh. darn the consequences. On the Damn opposite the side sure. of that, though, is the banality of evil. So I really did a deep dive into mass psychosis. And um, I haven't read Hannah Arendt's books, but I've read enough quotes to get the flavor, I think. Um, but the banality of evil, I, I read through that section, at least. Um, From and it, Eichmann in Jerusalem? Yeah. And it, it's it's the idea that, you know, we like to think that like evil is this easily identified thing. Like, if I met Hitler, I would know for sure that this was an evil human. But the banality of evil says, no, it actually looks like your smiling doctor. Absolutely. Actually looks like your neighbor. It actually, so, so there was this angst I had around not knowing who I could trust, but my trust really got really shattered in COVID. Like I don't like it really came clear as almost a year ago. Somebody said, well, if you, if you got COVID, you'd go to the hospital. And I thought about it and I said, actually, I wouldn't, No, I wouldn't because my hospital even still would put me on a vent and re- remdesivir. Like, no, I'm not last thing I would do. That's correct. Last thing. And, and extending the point about Hannah Arendt and uh, her, her, um, positing about the the banality of evil from Eichmann in Jerusalem. I, I did a deep dive into that about a year ago. Um, it, it's it's worse than it's just your neighbor or the smiling doctor. It's the neighbor or the smiling doctor who surrender their capacity for discernment and individual choice making. When you surrender that and choose to obey and comply rather than stand up and speak out, that is the banality of evil. And we've been surrounded by it. And I, I don't believe it's actually gone. No, I, I think it's actually, I, thought, I keep thinking it's going to break, but it gets worse, I think. Right? So it gets worse every time, like, when Justin Trudeau and um, his finance minister, Christopher Freeland, when, when they take ordinary, regular Canadians and they demonize them, they other them, they freeze their bank accounts, they call them horrible names, they basically say you're subhuman to us, you know? Um, that to watch that happen, I get why they're doing it because they're just craven, callous, shallow individuals as leaders. But the number of people who say nothing or support that even, that's what gets me. Yeah, the standing the standing by silently yeah. gets me too. And I heard you say, I want to return to it, and I hope I don't make you uncomfortable, but I think it's important for people who follow you because of your wisdom, your strength, and your courage to know that you realize that you're lonely, mm-hmm. that there's a loneliness in this. Um, there's a vulnerability in admitting that. And I'm wondering if in sharing that vulnerability, it makes it more possible for them to say it too. Mm. And in that vulnerability, maybe we can do something better with each other for each other. Because as we were talking about the banality of evil, I thought, what's the antidote? You know, I hate to rush to look for a solution. And, and I want to. What's the antidote? This is, uh, uh, I have many goals. And one of them is to, is to be more open, more, more vulnerable, to be more human. Because I, I actually think full diagnosis. I think if I'm going to say in my, what I see going on in this world that's not quite right, that, that could use a lot of fixing, it's that we don't have a whole human experience and we're not allowed to have a whole human experience. 
right? So just watch the gross things that have happened just this year around sex and sexuality, confused around genderism, but Jeffrey Epstein is offed. That's right. Ghislaine Maxwell goes through a whole trial, not one John is named, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. We sell sex and sexuality and we shame it. And so it's, it's just like the proverbial, when you grab jelly and squeeze, it comes out in some awkward places, right? Mm -hmm. So we have like that one part of humanity, which is, is integral to our lives is eating and breathing is still this dark sort of area that's been converted into a really um, perverse. It's, it's just, it's just watching. It's just, it's, we're not dealing with the whole human. So the whole human, we, we need to be in relationship with nature, with each other begins with ourselves. Yeah. There's a sacredness to that. Yeah. And so it's not possible. What I've learned about myself, I can't take parts of myself and say, I don't like this part. I shall banish it. Right. It needs to be integrated and Exile brought in. Exile that shadow. <laughs> yeah. No, it doesn't work. Um, so, yes, that's my own goal for myself is to is to find that way to, to allow the masks to fall as much as possible. Yeah, I'm, I'm scared about where we are in this world. I, the trajectory we're on, I don't like it. It worries me a lot. I have a lot of judgments about the way we are living our lives right now, including I think that, you know, this whole idea of going into the metaverse is just in a really elaborate way to ask people to waste their lives. Hmm. Right? The whole idea, like I watched the ads for the metaverse. They're like, look at this amazing thing and you can be in this really immersive, almost real environment. I'm like, that's called outside. That's what that is. It's already there. You don't need to remake it. <laughs> it's called outside, folks. And guess what? You don't even have to pay for it. It's free. Oh, but we oh. can't have that. Oh, no, no. Profit maximization is what it is. Well, then you're just tagged in back human. Did I just get human... cynical? Did yeah. you just rub off on me? You just called me human livestock with, with a barcode. <laughs> oh, no. Uh. No, that's where we're at in this story. So I, I do think that, um, well, this is really important. So back to the forms of capital. Social capital is important. The most important form of capital I know about is emotional capital. Mm -hmm. You Let's say billion dollars, thousands of acres, really deep pantry, all good. Things get a little bit tough and you fall to pieces and kill yourself. Obviously, none of that other stuff mattered, right? So, so to be emotionally resilient is important. Um, and thinking about that is to think, reflect on your story. Like, where did your emotional resilience come from? It came from the smile of the little girl in the frozen dress, from that connection. And so here's something I know I'm bad at. Okay. Being in community. Oh, here, because I grew up in a, I grew up in a, in a suburban Hold neighborhood. On. I, I, my, my, my BS detector just kicked on. Pa pardon no, me. No, I didn't, I didn't grow really? up with it. So here, all right, I spent three years of my life on an experiential education program called the Audubon Expedition Institute. Okay. 20 kids, two guides, got on a school bus and we did experiential education. So, um, geology was in the Grand Canyon, marine biology was John Penny Camp off oh, of Florida. Wow. Anthropology included hanging out in with the Hopis on this middle Mesa. And also I spent six weeks out of my life, two weeks each of those school years, on an old order Amish farm in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Uh, and the deal was these people had nothing. One light bulb in the cow barn so the cows would milk at the right time. But other than that, nothing. Horse and buggy kind of stuff, right? And so the deal was we would work like dogs for us. For them, they were probably like, these guys don't know how to work, right? But we would work. And then at night, we would sit in the parlor and talk with Ferris Hurst about what his life was like. That was the deal. So we sort of interfaced our worlds. And it was in that moment that in talking with him, that's where I saw what an actual community was. So think about white suburban kid, 
coming out of Connecticut. I thought I knew what a community was. I had no idea, right? And we were there the second year I was there. There was actually a barn that had burned down. And so we went to a barn raising. Now, it looks like magic because you show up and, and it gets built. Yeah. But you don't see the, the weeks and weeks of getting all the timbers pre-cut and ordered. And the, the women are handling the food and all the stuff perfectly. And everybody knows what to do. And 150 people show up and this barn goes up in like a day, right? That's community. That's community. So I came from a community where people wanted to be around each other. These people had a community based on need. Mm -hmm. It's a big difference. So that's where I think we need to get to. And so when I say I don't know community, I've never lived in a community where people needed each other. Like if I don't like my neighbor, I'll talk to them. That's if, right. Right? I, nothing happens. Right. You could not talk to your neighbor your entire time living next to them and nothing happens. But in the Amish community, if you didn't do that, when your barn burns down, nobody's building your barn. And you're building your barn. Yes. And that has a whole different expense associated. So how do we get it. to need with each other? Can we? I, I believe it's possible. And it's, it's like um, growing the garden doesn't happen overnight. Mm -hmm. And and the. Uh, the way to having a harvest is there's going to be a lot of things that that, that might be killed accidentally. Um, but here's where I'm going. It, we make attempts. We we start to, to say hi to our neighbors. Um, I'm really lucky that I, I have neighbors that um, I heard th there was some, some target practice happening and I wasn't sure of the direction. Mm -hmm. And You decided, want to know these things. Yeah, who's, who's doing this out in the, in the woods and how close are they to the property? And so went over and got to got to say hi and you know you're awfully close and they're wonderful people when i was sick during covid mm -hmm. they uh they brought groceries they didn't need to do that they've helped me move soil they've mm -hmm. asked me we've developed a friendship and and so there was some some need that need melded into kindness that became the social currency of like so it's it, it starts in, in, in fits and bursts. Mm -hmm. And that, that also happened with my friends, Carl and Ann. They are wonderful people. Met them on the site. And uh, they needed a, a farm sitter. And I needed to learn an awful lot about a farm. <laughs> and so I went and I learned how to take care of their, their cattle, mm -hmm. their, uh, lots of their livestock, uh, stock, their, their permaculture um, property. They took the time to help me learn how to take care of their property so they could go away. And it was a mutual exchange. And in all of that happening, they're the, they're the coolest people you could ever meet. Yep. They're amazing. So generous, so helpful. So that might be a way that we begin. And I'm being really specific in thinking about my rural upstate New York community, but yeah. there's got to be other ways to do it in other contexts. So if enough is the gateway word to happiness, I found that the, the key to community building is the word yes. So when my neighbor says, hey, uh, I'm thinking of going skiing, has this all long explanation. I haven't seen my son in X years, all that, you know, <laughs> he's trying to get around to, can you feed my cows? And my answer is yeah. Yep. I always just say yes to these things. Immediately say if yes. If anybody ever asks for anything, you say yes. Yeah. Then you work out the details. There's a beauty in that, right? Yeah. And a grace and an ease to saying yes. Mm -hmm. See? See? There, <laughs> but I think we're, I think what I'm what I'm gently easing into my own nudge unit says uh, I think we're going to need each other. I, I know this. In listen, 
with China telling us that peak oil is real for them, with Russia telling us peak oil is real for them, we're going to admit it and, to ourselves here And tomorrow eventually. is the day. And tomorrow's the big day, by the way, if you're watching this live. Um, tomorrow, uh, Friday, April 1st, is going to be April Fool's Day for Europe, having to pay for their uh, tasty, tasty hydrocarbons in, in rubles. Uh, but we're going to discover that we're, we're over the crest of our fossil fuels. Again, it doesn't run out immediately, but it means we don't get more like we've been used to. And most importantly, and this is a subtle concept, it's in the crash course. If you go to Peak Prosperity, check it out. It's a free 28-chapter thing, which will probably be 30 chapters when I rebuild it. But the chapter on um, energy and energy economics, particularly around net energy. If you haven't watched that, that's one of those things that, that for me, when I wrap my head around net energy, changed everything about how I see the world, including the amount of gratitude I have for how easy it is right now. I know that this is amazing time to be alive, that we can even do this, have this conversation across distances. I see some of you are checking in from all sorts of countries, uh, literally around the world right now. And so that's amazing uh, that we can do this. I'm very grateful for that. And I also know that these easy times, this peak in prosperity is nudging over. And our leaders, bless their hearts, the best compassion I can have for them is they can't bear to think about that system ending. So they're doing everything they can to perpetuate the unperpetuatable. They want to sustain the unsustainable. The problem with that story is that when, not if, but when you finally have your tumble, you don't tumble off the third rung of a stepladder. You tumble off the 15th rung of an extension ladder, and it's a very different much more painful experience. Long way down, and it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt. So I think we're going to need to, to have these communities with each other. I know this for a fact. I just know that things get harder. So I can't predict where and how, because here's the thing. We have a complex system. The economy is in a complex system. Here's what we know about complex systems is scientists study them in intimately. You can't predict when they're going to change, or how big that change is going to be. All you can do is look for the emergent behaviors that come out of that system. So what's an emergent behavior? It's, it's like um, uh, if, you, if we take diesel and we run it from $3 a gallon to 6 which has just happened. Mm -hmm. you, my, my car is diesel, by the way, so I, I, I'm feeling that you pain. Can, you I can felt feel it on the way here. So... Yeah, but imagine you're a long-haul trucker who's, oh, sure. who's barely at the edge and a lot of your profit margin was contained within the price of fuel, mm -hmm. for better or worse. Mm -hmm. um, and so all of a sudden, you just decide you can't continue. or you know. And so we can't predict how that's going to emerge in this, what's going to emerge, but we'll figure it out. And we're going to say, because this didn't show up, that didn't happen. Because that didn't happen, this couldn't happen. And, and then we'll figure out what the result of that is. But we can't predict it. We, we lack the fundamental capability to predict it. They figured this out when they were modeling piles of sand. So this is a complex system. You, you drop a piece of sand, and if you drop enough pieces of sand, a sand pile builds, and it builds, and it builds, and it builds, and then at some point it slumps. And it could be a little slump, or it could be a big catastrophic slump. And where's that marginal piece of sand? And which one is it and why? And so they realized, so they, they built a computer program to do this. So they would run millions of simulations, just rebuild and fall, rebuild and fall. Looking for, can we predict when and how big is that collapse going to be? And at the end of it, they realized they couldn't predict anything. What they could do is they could tell you there would be fingers of instability would begin to develop, meaning they were slightly steeper sections on this cone that was developing. And when you mapped the number of fingers, if there were more fingers of instability on there, the chances were higher that it would slump sooner and larger. 
That's the best we can do. Earthquakes can't predict when or how big. But we can tell you because it hasn't released in a decade or two or three, there's a chance that it's going to release sooner and it's going to be larger. The point being that these are complex systems. A pile of sand is a complex system. An earthquake fault is a complex system. Our economy is a complex system. And the complexity of a system, we know it owes its order and its beautiful complexity to the amount of energy it has available to it. Mm -hmm. So the earth is this beautifully complicated thing. We've got octopi and giraffes and orchids and things. If the sun blinked out, it would get a lot simpler. Sure would. Right? That simplification would Mm -hmm. become a lot less interesting very, very rapidly from a life standpoint, right? Same thing is true of our economy. So when we go from abundant net surplus energy to less abundant, I can't tell you what's going to happen exactly, but I will tell you that we have 300,000 job classifications right now. That beautiful, abundant complexity of job classifications is supported by all this tasty energy. Mm -hmm. Take some of that energy away, and we'll skinny back to 200,000 job classifications at some point. Mm -hmm. Then 100,000, then we'll be back to eight. And candle maker, fairy, sure. you know, whatever. That's, well, that's where I was going with thinking about what would happen in that reduction. You know, we, we would be focused on jobs that were m- much more closely linked to our immediate survival. Mm-hmm. Candle maker, for sure. Yeah. It's going to become important to know those things. So I can't predict which are the first jobs to go away, but but they will, right? And I think we're already starting to experience that, that skinnying process a little bit. So... Um, right now, there are lots and lots of very, very mysterious shortages showing up all over the place. Mm-hmm. And the story is supply chain disruptions. There's some of that in there, but there's something more to this story, too, that I, that I, can't, I can't quite put my finger on. So I'm on the phone all the time. I talk with truckers. I talk with farmers. I talk with people in, in chip, the computer chip industries. I'll talk with anybody, right, and try and figure out what's going on. And they, none of them can really, they all have their stories, right? And it's just these shortages are everywhere right now. There comes a day, and it's like when that silent dog whistle blows that only dogs can hear, but consumers, there's just going to come a day when people walk into a store and there's an unbearable amount of emptiness on the shelves and they're going to just buy whatever they can in that moment. And that's when prepping stops being resilience and, and, and good preparation turns into hoarding, right? So I'm a big fan of being prepared. I'm not a fan of panic buying in a hoarding situation, you know, because the, the panics hit. Once the panic hits, you shouldn't be anywhere near a store. You have no oh, business, no. right? No. You know, but, but I understand people will be there for lots of reasons, right? They'll get, I couldn't afford to buy extra baby formula. I don't have insulin that, you know, I can, my doctor won't prescribe me more than 28 days of whatever. Or there are a lot of stories out there. I get that. But the base preparations, like making sure that you have enough food in your house. That you have seeds on hand, just you've learned how to process them and plant them and all that. These are the things I think. You know what I get out of it? What? Control. I like being in control of some of my destiny. Okay. Say more about that. Well, I, I we probably grow maybe 3% of our calories, maybe 5 Okay. Here. Well, with the cows, honestly, we have a whole year's worth of food roaming around out there right now. So, so. What's your goal? So if it's 3%, maybe 5 what's your goal? Where would you like to be a year from now? I would like that to be running at about 50% if I could. Okay. For sure. The But the deal is, though, let's imagine 50%. it's only 3%. Okay. If ever something happens, there's this vaunted nuclear attack, there's an EMP, it's a grid down, um, there's some massive food shortage for no good reason, there's another outbreak of COVID, I don't know. But if the food chains ever got disrupted, at, if I'm at 3%, to go from 3% to 100% is 
It's a totally different story from somebody who has to start from zero. Mm -hmm. That gap between the zero and three is ginormous. It's ginormous. It's not represented by the 3%. It's represented by all the learning that had to go into even getting to oh, 3%. Sure. So I, I'd said, you know, get started. That was, but just, just set a modest goal. It doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. Get used to planting anything. But this year I'm going to try for more baseload calories. Are you? Yeah. So what's your Potatoes. plan? Potatoes. Okay. Corn. Oh, Kunstler calls it the uh, the Russian survival diet. I heard that and I laughed, and then I said, "Wait a minute! No, what he was talking about um, cabbage, cabbage, and onions. Yeah, and uh, what was the other that he had on potatoes? There? Potatoes it has to be oh. potatoes, <laughs> of course. <laughs> and those winter over. Yeah, and if nothing else, you can make vichyssoise. I mean, I'm not going to want to eat vichyssoise all winter, or maybe I will. Maybe mm -hmm. I'll be happy I have it. But yeah. so so your goal is 50, percent and you're going to start with just heavying up on potatoes and cabbage. Mm -hmm. What else are you gonna What else are you gonna grow? Corn. Okay. And lots of beans. Um, beans because they fix their own nitrogen. Beans because um, they, they're they're a very nutrient dense food that also dries and stores really sure. well and easily. A lot of processing to get them out of their shells and all this and that, but it's not bad. Um, so I yeah, basically the what did the the Indians had to the three sisters right? I Which was, was corn say. and bean and squash right? Yeah. yeah. So so that all works as well. Squash stores really well. It's a very high baseload calorie thing. It's reasonably pest resistant um, through its growing cycle. But potatoes are really, they're, they're the workhorse in this story. They are. How are you going to do it? Are you going to do it in a barrel? Are you going to plant them in a raised bed? Or um, right? Well, I'm, we're converting our field. So our goal here is to recondition the soil on our field out there so that we could support 50 people. Take care of that soil. Yeah, just building the soil. But I'm going to take stretches of it and turn it into potatoes. Right. We did some of that last year. Here's the experiment I ran. I'm lazy. So it's field. It's really deep, thick, you know, roots. Like breaking oh, sod is, it, a, it's a it's a thing, right? It's a thing. It's a thing. It's so, a great workout. I mean, people have CrossFit, but if you work on a farm, it's it's a great workout. It's humbling. Yeah, they name the CrossFit, you know, names of, of uh, old girlfriends, I think. from. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah, no, that the, the, the founder of it, he named. Oh, really? Yeah, exes. And so some exes were really punishing. So they, the, Oh, the workouts of the day, the wads or whatever yeah. they're called. They're named after ex-girlfriends? Uh, wow. <laughs> the whatever, right? So, um. But yeah, if we could say the, the this wad is <laughs> the workout of the day is can can you can you hand prep a hundred linear feet? That's a lot of potato bed. Well, anyway, so here's what last year's experiment was. I just mowed it really short. We threw the potatoes down right on the grass. Okay. Um, and then put a whole lot of cow manure and from the from having mucked out the winter stalls. Okay. It worked out okay. Mm-hmm. You know, we got maybe 300 pounds of potatoes out of out of the stretch after having planted 40. It wasn't bad. The problem was that um, mostly you're supposed to leave the potatoes in for a good long time, and the voles went at them. So we both like mostly said, bred voles. Even if it grows, <laughs> all of nature wants your stuff. We, so let me. This was fabulous. So, so I get this knock at the door. I open it in a quarter second. Like, I, there's a guy I don't recognize. Could have been a Jehovah's Witness. Who knows, right? So my normal instinct is to be really cagey, right? Who are you? What do you want? You? Yes. No way. Mm, who's interrupting my day, you know? <laughs> but I don't know why, but within a quarter second, I was like, hey, come on in. This guy had this thick Irish accent, hands like, you know those worker hands? Worker hands. Like just giant paws, yes. right? 65 years old, thick, thick accent. And we got to talking, and it turned out he said, hey, I, I stopped. 
I stopped because I saw your cars. Right? Bad, bad accent, but that was Actually, him. that was pretty good. Um, <laughs> Irish lineage here. That was pretty good. I'm impressed. All right. So he, he saw the cows, and he'd seen cows like that at home because we have these belted Galloways, which are Scottish breed, So, but he'd seen them. And he knew a lot about cows because he'd grown up, and one thing led to another. We teased the stories out. This guy had grown up in West Ireland. He was 16 before he saw his first flush toilet. They had no running water in the house. And he told all these stories like this was just life to him, right? Um, very sort of mean father and, you know, all this you know, classic sort of story. Uh, but he caught me and he said, yeah, you know, he had all the stories about potatoes. And so they would dig them as late as they could in the season because they didn't want the rats to get to them. So he said, yeah, I remember me and my brothers. And his brother came over and said, hey, Jerry, have you, uh, have you taken a leak lately? He said, no. He said, can you pee on my hands? Because he couldn't work his fingers anymore, right? And so there in the dusk, Jerry pees on this guy's hand so he could manipulate him a little so he could keep digging because he didn't want to disappoint Dad because that was bad. So they would dig their potatoes as late as possible. And then they would build a, a mound right. that they would put these complicated rush things over that they would freeze into place. And there was a certain, they had a whole thing around how they made the potato mound. And then all through the winter, they would just go into that and just nibble in further and further. But that's how they survived. Sure. Dig the potatoes as late as possible. Make a big giant mound out of them and do your best to keep the rats out. Do your best to keep the rats out. Never. I've learned this from uh, Petra at Fruition Seeds. Never, ever take the mother potato. The original potato is called the mother. Never remove the mother. Leave the mother. And then you don't have to do so much the next time. What do you mean? So when you start, when you plant, Mm-hmm. You're going to plant that original potato, mm-hmm. and then that potato will have baby potatoes. Yep. When a baby, when a when a mommy potato and a daddy potato love each other very much, that's actually not <laughs> how it works. Sorry. Yep. <laughs> Getting a little silly. It was a long ride today, um, but when you plant that original potato, you'll get the offshoots, and you you harvest those. You leave the mother potato in the soil. Mm-hmm. So that's so, and it resprouts from that. Yes. Okay. I'll try that. There's no way I just taught you something. Yeah, you did. Oh. <laughs> My time here is finished. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, oh, man. So. <sighs> you know what this makes me think about? What's that? When I was coming here, I was also thinking about what I wished for, and I wished I had a time machine. Mm. And I'm going to tell you why. Mm-hmm. I wished I had a time machine because my mother, it turns out, was very right about a lot of things. My mother's the person who taught me how to how to begin to garden. Yeah, and um, she taught me things like um, make sure you. Oh, this is embarrassing, but make sure you do things um, as frugally as possible, like rinse aluminum foil, save aluminum. Did foil. she go through the depression? Sure did. Yeah, my grandmother did the same thing. So if I had. She- a- she had a whole drawer full of like string cut off a roast because you never know. You never know. Right? Lists were on the back of when soup cans had That's paper right. labels. Waste nothing. Yeah. Waste nothing because resources were scarce and we weren't living never in, that, in that chewy center of petroleum the way we have been for the last, oh, I don't know, several decades. And we've been, what did the, what did the head of BlackRock call us? Spoiled and entitled. Entitled, yeah. And maybe in some ways with our regard to treatment of resources, we have been. Mm. So if I had a time machine, I would go back and I would actually really listen to my mom. Mm. She she had tremendous wisdom. And uh, and I, I didn't appreciate it as much as I wish I had. So she taught me things like thinking about 
coming full circle to the economy. She taught me things. I hated this at the time, but I, I couldn't ever purchase anything. She worked in a union, and I couldn't ever have anything if it didn't have a union label. Hmm. True story. Well, she wouldn't have liked this made in China thing. Very much. <laughs> she would have. She would have hated that. Yeah. She would have said, "Gracie, you can't have it." And that <laughs> was that was pretty much her accent. So, um, I wish that instead of um, thinking she was wrong and I knew better, I wish I had listened and I wish I had acted upon her wisdom. Mm. And I think collectively, if if we had listened, <laughs> maybe we wouldn't be where we are now. And maybe you know. That's looking in the rear view, right? But there might be some wisdom for going forward. It's not so terrible. Like these days, it kills me to waste anything. And so I don't necessarily rinse all of the aluminum foil, Chris, mm -hmm. but I do use it very differently. I'm really far more careful about all aspects of my consumption. Well, what I hate in this story is the degree to which my consumption is forced upon me. So a follower of mine, very generous, sent this big, beautiful printer, does everything. Oh, wow. Right? You know, gorgeous, full-color scanner, fax, does everything. One of those big boxes, right? Made by the Brother Company. <laughs> it's going to be important in this story because I'm never buying another brother again because... Wait, what was it again? A brother. I think, I think brother, you said a brother. A brother printer because what would happen is every 30 days it would just somehow run down all the ink i never printed anything in color Ooh. but it wouldn't operate without the cyan or the magenta and it would say oh they're all gone and their story was oh we have to clean the heads every so often so that's where it goes but nope you can pull out this thing that doesn't work and is full of ink so i hate that i hate when i'm forced to waste it, i really do it's it's so manipulative and you know what it I takes it. from you what you said you get from from cr controlling your own fields and working in your own gardens control it wrestles control from you. And and you're being told um, that on some level, you just that's the way it is and just got to accept it. Just how it is. Yeah, no, I'm right to repair. I'm like, yeah, I'm all about that. But I actually think planned obsolescence, people who plan the destruction of their own things in so that they force you to buy more. And I'm talking to you now, Apple. I was just about to mm -hmm. say that. I, I have the world's oldest iPhone. The battery drains like probably every 15 minutes. But I refuse on principle. <laughs> <laughs> to be forced. I refuse. I'm so angry for a lot of reasons. I'm washing aluminum foil. Do you think I want to put that iPhone, that, 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 that eight in the ground? No. That's a resource. <laughs> I'm, I'm mad as hell. I'm not going to take it anymore. Absolutely. So, um, What else do we have to say to Apple? Because let's get going. All right. Well, <laughs> actually, we're up at the end of our time here tonight, oh. believe it or not. Well, this was fun. I, it went fast. Hey. <laughs> Great talking to you, Grace. It was wonderful. So, um, hey, as we come up on the end of our time, I just want to remind everybody, peakprosperity.com, if you like these kinds of conversations, you want to figure out how to be more resilient, or most importantly, you want to hang out with your tribe. There are a lot of really cool people hanging out at Peak Prosperity. I am blessed, really blessed, that um, people have decided to bring their extraordinary talent and energy and coalesce around this bizarre little place and corner of the internet we've set up where we'll talk about anything, right? And uh, the older I get, the less I know, for sure. So we're really open-minded, and we're all about trying to figure out where to go and mostly how to live lives of meaning and purpose. And that means, in many ways, we're just figuring out how to do what we do um, on our own terms without, you know, we have to let go. It's like that story I told, if you were here for this part of the live cast, when I talked about when Darren Weeks 
put everybody into sort of school mode and they all slipped effortlessly into school mode and quieted down and had to get the right answers, right? Sometimes moving ahead means letting go of that which is no longer serving you. So today, I can tell you that for me, my dominant culture being lied to by the New York Times is not serving me in any way. To be censored hard or soft is not serving any of us at this point in time. But mostly the narrative shapers and controllers who are out there insisting that the world has to keep going in a certain direction when we can arguably demonstrably tell you that that direction is going to end very, very badly. I'm here to say that, that it's the beginning of the end in that story. The old story is dying. All hail the old story. Long live the new story. We're caught in this really uncomfortable moment between stories. The new story is not yet born. The old story is busy being non-functional. In that gap, that's the interregnum. That is between the reigns. Mm-hmm. We're between the old king and the new, the old queen and the new, right? So that interregnum is, is awkward. That's why we need each other more than ever. It's, that's what the tribe is about. That's why we come together and talk. That's why we learn from each other because it's very uncertain in this middle period. And so that angst we feel, the, the malaise, the, the, the depression, whatever it is we're experiencing is perfectly normal. That's how it is. And the way through that, of course, is to take control of what we can learn from each other, and just be ready, willing, and able to do whatever is necessary to resist, if we use that word, or to protest silently or um, outwardly, however we do that. Yeah, yeah. and as uh, well said, and as Charles Bukowski said, what matters most is how well you walk through that fire. Mm-hmm. That's before us. It's coming. So here we are. Thanks, everybody, for being part of this first live cast. Loved the comments. Loved the chats. Um, Going to have to work on figuring out how to... Uh, you know, bring those in even more than we did. Uh, love to do that. But thank you. Thank you for being here. It's been wonderful. We will see you next time. We're planning to do these on Thursday at seven o'clock. And if you want to see more of content like this, hey, come by peakprosperity.com. Love to see you there too. Oh, thanks That's for the it. kind feedback. And thank lot. you. Yes. Stay safe and continue to do great things. All right. Good night, everybody. And thank you very much for being here. Ha, 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 ha.